Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Vaping in New Jersey, Managing the Risk to Public Health. We recorded this program on Friday, December 6, 2019, at the Robert Treat Hotel in Newark, New Jersey. New Jersey officials are grappling with a growing number of reports of severe lung disease among relatively young patients with a history of e-cigarette use as the nation contends with a vaping explosion and new questions about the health impacts of these devices. Experts agree more study is needed to identify exactly what's causing the damage and what products are most to blame, while the e-cigarette industry insists the products are a safe alternative to traditional cigarettes, and some adult users insist vapes helped save their lives. But public health leaders have raised concerns about the flavors, colors, and marketing strategies vape companies use, which they say are designed to target kids. Hospital organizations and insurers have ramped up efforts to curb vaping, and public officials are taking steps to reduce long-term impact of e-cigarettes on a new generation. Governor Phil Murphy's outlined a number of regulatory and legislative steps he believes New Jersey should take, including banning flavored products, and State Senator Joseph Vitale has introduced a bill to do so. In this program, we'll hear from experts on how to understand vaping usage and best manage the risks to the public's health. Here to introduce the program is founding editor of NJ Spotlight, John Mooney. Welcome and good morning. Uh, my name is John Mooney. Mike here. Uh, I'm founding editor of NJ Spotlight. And, uh, thrilled to have everyone here uh, for this really important discussion, uh, one that transcends a lot of the issues that we cover uh, in New Jersey, certainly so health, but also schools and, and politics uh, lately. Um, and Really, it's, it's part of our public mission, not just to recover these issues, but uh, to bring people together to talk about them. And I, I say this often uh, in this online world. We have a lot of discussions uh, remotely and into our phones and into our computers, and I just think it's really important to uh, get folks in the same room to, to uh, talk about it and, and obviously do networking and all that as well. But I think it's, it, it brings a lot of vibrancy to the conversation. So uh, thank you for being part of that. Of course, we also do... Uh, online discussions and what's a conference without a hashtag. Um, so, um, and I think it, it may be flashing as I'm speaking, but vaping in New Jersey is our hashtag. We will also take questions if you want to tweet questions to that hashtag. Uh, we'll take questions for the panels um, that we'll print out and we'll get them up to the moderator. Um, but we also have index cards on the tables where if you have questions that you want to uh, enter into the discussion, feel free, feel free to do that as well. Um, and, and sort of wave them, and we'll be walking around the outskirts of the room, and, and we'll, we'll also get them up to the moderator. Um, I also want to say, uh, many of you know, uh, this last spring we got married to NJTV, our new partner. Um, it's been a wonderful uh, partnership, and, and they are going to be live streaming this event, um, as well as doing a segment on it tonight on the, on the broadcast. Um, that live stream, as well as the segment, will both be archived, uh, and, and so feel free to share those, and please do share those with others um, and, and you know, grow, grow the audience even more. Because I, as I said, I think this is a critical, critical discussion. A little shameless marketing for NJ Spotlight. Um, this is the end of the year. Uh, Giving Tuesday passed, but Giving Friday is here as well. Um, and uh, we exist because of you and with your support. And, and please, if, if, you, if, you, if you may, um, Come to our site. There's a big donate button. We have lots of donate buttons, also in our newsletter, um, and your support is, is greatly appreciated. 
We also can't do these events without the support of sponsors. I know you all go to a lot of conferences that charge uh, you know, a fee to be there. We don't, again, part of our public mission, but we need, you know, we need the resources to put these on. They're obviously not, not free for us. And I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot, our, our business development director, to talk a little bit about the sponsors of this event. Thank you, John. Thanks everyone for coming. Uh, we're very excited about the conversations that will ensue. There will be two panels. Uh, traditionally, we do a single panel, but today the subject matter is such that um, we felt that breaking the first one into health dimensions and the second into policy dimensions will allow us to serve the, uh, the subject matter really well, and we appreciate your, uh, your interest in joining us today. John mentioned that sponsors are essential to allowing us to put these events on. That is indeed true. Um, to allow them to be free to the public. We feel that is important as well. And I'd like to say a few words on behalf of our two sponsors today. Um, um, we are very gracious for their support. The first being Hackensack Meridian Health, which is New Jersey's largest and most comprehensive health network with 17 hospitals, more than 500 patient care locations, and 7,000 physicians. In October, the network launched a $1 million campaign called Take Vape Away to combat youth vaping, which includes grants to schools and community groups, the training of 50 nurses to reach students in 100 schools, and a research project at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine at Seton Hall University to determine the most effective ways to deter youth vaping. The Hackensack Meridian Health Network merged with Carrier Clinic this year to transform behavioral health care in New Jersey and opened the state's first behavioral health urgent care network in Neptune. A comprehensive addiction treatment center is scheduled to open in Bergen County this winter. So thank you very much to Hackensack Marine Health. Also sponsoring today is RWJ Barnabas Health, which is the largest, most comprehensive academic healthcare system in New Jersey, dedicated to providing high-quality patient care, cutting-edge research, and world-class health and medical education to transform and advance healthcare in New Jersey. RWJBH covers nine counties with a service area of more than five million people and is one of the state's largest private employers. Through its Institute for Prevention and Recovery, the IFPR, RWJ Barnabas Health has become a leader in nicotine and vaping prevention education and treatment in the state. IFPR educates thousands of youths and adults in vaping prevention training programs, providing resources to students, parents, school personnel, educators, healthcare professionals, faith-based organizations, community organizations, and law enforcement. The Institute also operates regional tobacco and nicotine cessation centers in seven counties in the state, serving people in Essex, Mercer, Middlesex, Monmouth, Ocean, Union, and Somerset counties with the resources they need to recover from nicotine and vaping addiction. So thank you to RWJ Barnabas Health and also to Hackensack Meridian Health. I'd like to um, now um, introduce the next part of our program, which is a, um, a direct result of NJ Spotlight's partnership with NJTV, and that is a, uh, a video explainer, if you will, to, um, to set the table for today's conversations. And um, if you'll please now direct your attention to the screen, we've got about a four and a half minute uh, video, which will then be followed by Dr. Ellen Hall's uh, keynote address. Thank you very much. It was lauded as a safer alternative to smoking. Now that I look at people who smoke, I'm like, dude, really? You're still doing that? 
You know, there's an alternative to that, right? You don't have to do that. And it worked. I feel the Juul is definitely a healthier option. It lacks a lot of the components of uh, tar and uh, different potent components that are known to be in cigarettes. Now it's ingrained in the youth culture here in New Jersey and across the country and glamorized on social media. This year, the FDA reported that in 2018, there was a 78% increase in high school vapors with more than one in four vaping and a 48% increase among middle schoolers with more than one in 10 vaping. The age range is from 14 to 75, but the median age is 21. And that's exactly who Juul targeted, according to a recent report by the New York Times that alleges the company used marketing tactics directed at young people, not the longtime smokers it originally claimed to be targeting. Juul has denied these claims, but there's no denying that fun e-cigarette flavors like mango, bubblegum, cotton candy, and cupcake have sucked in a younger generation. A vaping crisis, health emergency, severe lung damage. Earlier this year, another blow to e-cigarette manufacturers. Reports of sudden and severe lung illness started spreading across the country. 2,290 cases and 47 deaths nationally. And in New Jersey, 42 cases of illness with patients as young as 10. One woman died here in New Jersey, two died in New York City. But why? It does make some sense that we're able to, to find a link that connects each of the individual cases together. That link is the liquid ingredient vitamin E acetate, according to the CDC. It was found in the tissue of all 29 lung samples studied by the CDC. Vitamin E acetate is an ingredient used in many food items, but those are ingested, not inhaled. It's an oily substance that when you apply it to your skin, obviously uh, your skin tolerates very well and that doesn't belong in your lungs. Your lungs are made to only tolerate air and specific you know, gases and water-soluble substances. So lipids don't belong in your lungs and your lungs don't react to them very well. And while the CDC continues to investigate the cause, a New Jersey researcher at Rutgers University Camden found another possible culprit, plastic found in used vape cartridges. We're interested in these polymers that we're seeing. Polymers are like uh, plastics. And we're really curious to see if maybe there's a potential for these polymers to be coating the inside of the lungs. Some of the fluids that are in these vape cartridges um, have uh, properties that could eat away at the plastic. So this is why we're interested in looking at the new cartridges versus the used cartridges to see if maybe the exposure to some of these chemicals, the exposure to heat might be causing the plastic from the cartridge to leach out of the cartridge and then into the vape fluid. As the numbers of e-cigarette related illness rose this fall, Jersey City became the first city in the state to ban the sale of flavored vapes. This is a very alarming issue. So our goal is to hopefully reduce the appeal to young people by banning the flavors. And now the state looks poised to follow suit. This fall, the governor convened a task force to analyze the state's role in reducing e-cigarette use, especially among young people. The result was a package of bills limiting the sale of vaping products. The health committees in both houses moved them forward. They still need the approval of the full Senate and Assembly. These products that are flavored are designed to, to attract and then addict kids. 
that's the bottom line. Now what we have is an entire generation of kids across the country who are addicted to nicotine. And the nicotine addiction is as strong or stronger as a heroin addiction. So we have to re- try to eliminate access at all points for them to access that product. Finally, Juul announced it would ban the sale of its flavors, mango, cream, fruit, and cucumber, along with its most popular flavor, mint, saying in a statement, we must reset the vapor category by earning the trust of society and working cooperatively with regulators, policymakers, and stakeholders to combat underage use while providing an alternative to adult smokers. In September, President Trump announced he would support a flavor ban, but then walked it back only a short time later. But are the bans enough, or will they only embolden an unregulated black market, as some have argued? And what about the generation of young people now hooked on extreme levels of nicotine? Is it all just too little, too late? I'm Joanna Gagas, NJTV News. Thank you very much, NJTV. And Joanna is here as well, so you can all congratulate her. That was a very comprehensive piece, and uh, really appreciate it. Um, so let's get the program started. Oop. Um, I'd like to introdu- introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Sharif Al-Nahal. Uh, been a good friend of NJ Spotlight, and, and we appreciate him joining us today. Um, many, of, many of you know him as having served as New Jersey's health commissioner uh, under Governor Murphy from 2018 to, I think it was last July, when he was named president and CEO of University Hospital. Uh, the son of physicians himself, he's a, a Jersey boy, grew up in Linwood and, and Galloway. I'm taking this from his Wikipedia page, by the way, so um, you can learn more about that. Uh, took a detour uh, to get his dual uh, degree, MD and MBA from Harvard. I think he's the only one in this room who's got a dual degree from Harvard, so credit to that. Um, and then uh, was a White House fellow under President Obama and served in the Veterans Health Administration uh, before he was named health commissioner. And as health commissioner, and this is where um, he has been at our roundtables before, uh, especially noted for his work combating opioids, uh, the opioid, opioid um, epidemic, and, and so spoke at a roundtable, a series of roundtables we did on that last year. So it's my pleasure uh, to have him join us and, and speak a, a little bit about uh, this next issue for us and, and, again, help set the table for the panels to come. Thank you. Dr. Eleanor. I want to thank uh, John for that very warm introduction and uh, to NJ Spotlight and NJTV. Um, there, it's getting harder and harder to find news outlets that aren't consistently mudslinging and instead uh, providing a really uh, useful and productive forum around policy and real uh, public health issues in particular. And um, I think both organizations coming together has made that even stronger. Um, I want to uh, just sort of introduce uh, my role now and how it's evolved into um, what I'm doing from my role as health commissioner. Um, I'm now the president CEO of the state's only public hospital uh, in the city of Newark. Uh, and I thought that I'd really have to sort of change gears and be just very focused operationally on running that business. And it's amazing how much of my training and my work in public health in New Jersey has come uh, to the top of my list, even in my role now. Uh, we focused a lot on urban health care when I was a health commissioner, and uh, we're finding that a public and population health uh, role for this hospital is really where we need to go. So um, I, I consider myself as, uh, you know, really sort of taking the baton of public health to be really important for the mission uh, of our hospital in Newark. Um, I want to just get a show of hands quickly on this question. How many people in this room think we are 
winning uh, in public health? Very broad question. Are we winning generally in public health in America? Just raise your hand. Okay. How many people think we are losing the public health battle right now? Yeah, the majority. I will take the side of the majority in this case. Our disparities in health outcomes continue to worsen. The suicide rate for 10 to 14 year olds is up three times what it was over the last five years. We have had three consecutive years in a row with declining life expectancy. And part of this list of terrible trends is what John mentioned, which is the rising, ever rising rates of youth use of nicotine and addiction to nicotine and an incredibly high rate of increase in general nicotine use in the general population. I do want to say before I get into my uh, impassioned argument against vaping that we're all better informed and in a better position to advocate for smart and effective policies if we have both sides of the debate at the table. So in all seriousness, even though uh, they invite New Jersey Spotlight invited folks with whom I um, recently had a Twitter war on this issue, uh, we are all better off that they are here at the table today so that we can really clarify our own thinking about this controversial topic. I want to acknowledge the hard work of my colleagues at other health systems, uh, Hackensack, Meridian, RWJ Barnabas, American Cancer Society, Action Network. They've also been critical voices in addition to what we're trying to do at University Hospital, in addition to the policymakers who will be here today, Senator Vitale and Assemblyman Herb Conway, who have been leading voices in this issue alongside the Murphy administration, which has really tried to do everything they can, not just for uh, reducing the uh, epidemic of vaping, but smoking and tobacco use more generally. So I'm very much looking forward to those two panel discussions. It's important to reflect, reflect on where we are as a state and a nation when it comes to vaping use by both children and adults. As of last week, there have been nearly 2,300 vaping-related illnesses nationwide, and that is just what is reported. It's not clear how many have not been reported, folks living with more minor illness at home related to vaping. We know that patients with vaping-related lung injuries will typically present in the emergency department, and they have at University Hospital. But the reality is they could be suffering from a serious lung, lung injury even if they don't. According to recent state and federal data, we know of at least 80 confirmed and probable cases of vaping-related lung illness in New Jersey. We also know that there have been close to 50 deaths around the country, including the tragic loss of one woman right here in our state. A study of lung tissue samples from 17 patients who passed away due to vaping-related illness showed that the injury to the lungs can look like chemical burns or toxic chemical exposure. This is real. It is shown in not only the way that patients present, but in their tissue and their pathology. It is the same as a corrosive, toxic chemical coming into your lungs every single day for the people who use it. It is just beginning for adults who are looking for alternatives to transition away from cigarettes, but has seeped into our children and teenager, teenagers who are just becoming aware of smoking and vaping and its risks. Yesterday, the CDC released a very concerning report uh, about the percentage of our youth who are consuming at least one nicotine product. One in three 
use at least one type of tobacco product, with the overwhelming predominance being e-cigarettes in addition to other tobacco products. And the most concerning is that this report showed that over 10% of kids in middle school had tried e-cigarettes. Over 10%. Let's talk about the flavoring. Watermelon, kiwi, berry, strawberry, cheesecake. Uh, these are flavors that are enjoyed by adults, but were part of a concerted effort by Juul and other companies to target a age demographic between the ages of 18 and 30. Of course, when you have a concerted effort to do that, that will seep into even younger ages. With these options in the market, it's no surprise that the federal survey I mentioned just show, showed that just over 60% of the youth who vaped used flavored products. A common rejoinder to these citing these increasing rates of use by minors is that the nicotine in and of itself is not as harmful as combustible products of tobacco. And now that Juul has taken most flavors, I think uh, all flavors off the market, that's going to be less of an issue. But while that may be true, all of that may be true, yesterday's CDC report also showed that a substantial percentage of kids are co-consuming cigars, cigarettes, smokeless tobacco, hookah, and pipe tobacco alongside of vaping. This problem is by no means small in scale. An estimated 2.1 million people in America, middle school and high school students, used more than one tobacco product and the vast, for the vast majority, e-cigarettes were one of those products. It's pretty concerning evidence and, and it's easy to understand that you're more likely to use a different tobacco product if you are made addicted to a conceivably less harmful tobacco product that may not have those combustible products. We know that the rates of co-use of vaping and other forms of tobacco are extremely high in the adult population. And it appears to be the case as well for our youth. Behind all of this is an industry that has pushed a disingenuous narrative that casts vaping as an acceptable alternative to cigarettes, even go, going as far as to call it harm reduction. I have a lot to say about this because I have a background in public health and I know what harm reduction is. Vaping is not harm reduction. First, it's important to know that multiple FDA-approved smoking cessation methods already exist. And nicotine vaping carries neither the appropriate level of evidence nor the legal authority to be marketed as a smoking cessation tool, period. The industry felt otherwise initially using slogans like make the switch in an attempt to suggest that there are medical and health benefits to vaping in lieu of smoking without technically stepping into the regulatory territory of saying that is a treatment for smoking. Despite this, Juul and other companies have aggressively marketed their products to encourage people to use weasel words like make the switch to still encourage the mindset in smokers. The vaping industry's arguments are based on three things. That it is a public health tool against smoking. Number one, some professional societies, societies in the UK did officially endorse it over cigarettes. Number two, a New England Journal of Medicine randomized controlled trial showed that uh, vaping led to higher rates of smoking cessation, cigarette smoking cessation, than other nicotine replacement, uh, nicotine replacement products that are FDA approved. And the third is that many contended that vaping was effectively harm reduction, a public health term that describes evidence-based facilitation of safer avenues of risky behavior, such as needle exchange programs for injection drug use or safe sex with protection like condoms and other methods. Here is what is wrong with each of these talking points. On the first issue, 
the one about professional societies endorsing it, endorsing a different addictive drug with what seemed to be a lower side effect profile is not a treatment. An acceptable treatment should improve a clinical outcome and its benefits should outweigh the risks of its use. That is the piece that is missing from the professional society's assessment of vaping as an acceptable alternative. We did not have enough time. The explosion of vaping as an addictive drug over the last five to 10 years is not nearly enough time to understand the health effects of this drug. And we are seeing those uh, issues manifest now. Like, as I mentioned, over 2,000 vaping-related lung injury cases just over the last several months. We didn't have enough time to assess this in a rigorous way, so to claim that it is effective harm reduction akin to what is rational and evidence-based like clean needles, like condoms, is ridiculous. The second, the clinical trial that I mentioned, was a comparison between smoking cessation methods like nicotine replacement, uh, gum and patches versus vaping. The endpoint that the UK study uh, uh, conductors picked was quitting cigarettes. So yes, the vaping arm quit cigarettes at a higher level than smoking cessation tool arm. However, the vast majority, 80% of people in the vaping arm, continued to be addicted to nicotine and did not get off of vaping. We have to be more bold and understand what the real goal is, which is to get people off of their dependence on an addictive drug in the first place. So I do not find that that is an acceptable study endpoint for us to be able to say that it is harm reduction. The smoking cessation arm had about 20% of people who continued to be reliant on those nicotine replacement therapies. A therapy is supposed to make you better. And vaping is not. The third, around harm reduction. Harm reduction is a sensitive topic. And it's controversial. There have been people who have opposed the clean needle exchange even to this day. We've had to develop decades of evidence to say that it is a, that certain interventions are effective harm reduction tools. The high rates of concurrent smoking and vaping, the increasing incidence of vaping-related lung illness that has killed people, make me think that we do not even know enough yet about the risk side of the equation for us to be able to say as public health officials and as stewards in general of health that it is an effective alternative. Finally, regarding childhood use. It is really difficult to believe that the industry never intended to see the staggering rates of childhood use that we are seeing today. An expose in the New York Times just before Thanksgiving had testimony from former executives, employees, and investors in Juul that said they had a concerted strategy to target the age demographic population that I mentioned and did not concertedly, did not do enough to prevent minors from using it. Does that sound like an industry that's concerned about cigarette smoking, a practice that's much more common for people who are older? A generation with historically low smoking rates, early 20s, were targeted. So if this was about people who smoke, shouldn't they have actually targeted the people who smoke instead of trying to grow market share in a population that hadn't been using nicotine at all? And no doubt, this targeted strategy for younger people had spillover effects into the younger ages that we are talking about. Why would a company that is quote-unquote concerned about youth vaping refuse to sign a pledge in 2017 
that said that they would not market to teenagers as part of a lawsuit settlement for just that purpose. Why did the FDA literally have to force Juul to sign this agreement in the summer of 2018? And why would an industry that, again, claims to be concerned about smoking literally pitch to investors as early as 2015, and they were successful, by the way, because some of the biggest investors in vaping companies are big tobacco, that they could be strategic buyers of Juul and therefore we should really be investing in them. That doesn't sound like an organization that's concerned about public health. That sounds like an organization that's trying to grow its market share and profitability. So what do we do about all this? At the federal level, President Trump's administration is approaching public policy around vaping in a now familiar pattern uh, that we've seen before. Initially, they took a firm stance knowing that this is a public health issue. And then guess who got in front of them? The vaping industry and vaping advocates and they've since reversed their position. As of last week, the administration has fully adopted the associated industry talking points rather than following through on policies that they promised when people were literally dying across the country. Instead, states are now implementing those policies around the country, but that is a patchwork and it needs to be more clear, consistent string of federal policy that unites all of us together. It's been a decade since Congress acted to prohibit the sale of flavored cigarettes. The law banned sweet candy flavored cigarettes that everyone agreed had a strong appeal among kids. This is a common sense solution that should be applied to e-cigarettes. This is a no-brainer. What they got wrong at the time was that they carved out menthol. Menthol is disproportionately used in communities of color. And they specifically carved that out because of the financial gain that these companies were getting again, in our communities of color for marketing it. So today, 70% of young African-American smokers use menthol cigarettes, and among adults, the racial gap is even bigger. More than three quarters of black smokers use menthol. That is three times the amount of white smokers. So I applaud both Senator Vitale and Senator Singer's bipartisan bill at the state level to stop, finally stop the sale and distribution of menthol and clove cigarettes. We need the same thing unequivocally for flavored vaping uh, in this state. And I applaud the Massachusetts legislature and the Massachusetts governor for signing a bill to that effect. And I know that the New Jersey legislature, both Assemblyman Conway and Senator Vitale, are going to get their bill through uh, based because uh, it's based on the governor's recommendations and it will be signed. What University Hospital is doing, we have a role in public health. We see our role in this fight as a community resource to provide information and advice to the greater Newark community. We know that smoking rates are extremely high in Newark, as are vaping rates. We're seeing these patients in our emergency room. We're stepping up our hospital's education efforts. Our physicians are hosting discussion panels on the dangers of vaping. We run tobacco cessation groups that include uh, e-cigarettes. And this is in addition to our pop-up health clinics, our community health fairs, and our expanded community health programming. As we continue this work and our direct outreach efforts, we see the real opportunity to educate and improve health outcomes outside of our hospital. In closing, it's important to understand that smokers who have since switched to vaping and I've found that their symptoms have improved, deserve to be heard in this discussion. But the bottom line is that as public health professionals, what we do is listen to people and educate. And we know that there is a far cry from what the industry is claiming to people who vape versus the actual evidence on its potential benefits. The fact that pro-vaping constituencies have resorted to the tactics I've mentioned underscores their intentions. And unfortunately, I don't believe that they'll stop. So without new and much more convincing evidence comparing vaping to smoking, 
we have to expose what that industry's messaging is, which is a farce. The light at the end of the tunnel is the policy that the Murphy administration and our legislative leaders are trying to do to stem the tide of this epidemic. Now that I have the privilege of leading the state's only public hospital, I'll say this. Our patients deserve a more bold approach to smoking than simply replacing it with an equally addictive substance that has proven to be far from safe. People can achieve the real goal, actually quitting. That should be our goal. It is on us as clinicians and public health officials to help patients see themselves through that real finish line. Thank you all for having me and please enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you. Now we're going to get started with our first panel discussion. If the panelists can come up and join us. I think you know who you are. Hopefully you know who you are. And again, um, we're taking questions two ways. One is uh, through Twitter, uh, in hashtag VapingNJ, um, but also if you uh, want to write it down on the index cards or, or whatever paper you might have, uh, and just wave that to one of us who's walking around, um, we will get that up to um, moderator. Uh, in addition, on your, I forgot to mention this, on, on your uh, tables are some surveys that we asked uh, before you leave if you could fill them out, uh, share us your thoughts about uh, the panel discussion, how it, how it went, uh, the things that work, the things that don't. We've done about a hundred of these, but we continue to try to improve upon them, and that feedback is really helpful to us. So please, uh, before you leave, if you could fill that out. Um, you guys can come on up. Oh, is this one? Okay. Good morning. Oh, wait, do we have a second? And I want to introduce Lilo Stanton. Stanton. Yeah. How, how long have we worked together? Yeah, that's right. Lilo, Lilo Stanton. Uh, he's our healthcare reporter um, for the last seven years. Seven seems like a long time. Uh, uh, is is a wonderful um, journalist as, as well as a great moderator and uh, we're proud to have her working with us and, and leading this discussion. So Lilo, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you all for being here this morning. Um, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out to hear this. This is an, I think this is one of these I have to say, of all the roundtables that we put together, this one sort of was seamless. Um, there was so much interest in this topic, um, and it just—it's been clear from, you know, the stories, from the legislative reaction, um, from everything we've seen, that this is one of those topics that really um, that really grabs people. So I'm going to give some quick introductions, and I'm going to let these good people um, tell them tell you a little bit about themselves, and then we will get into the questions. Um, and like John said, if you have questions, please put them on the cards and you can just hold them up and someone will get them and send them up my way. So um, from left to right, my left to right, Abigail Thompson. Nope. Oh, nope, wrong. <laughs> Sorry, that's Abigail Thompson. Uh, Samantha D'Almeida. Yep. Am I saying right? right? Okay. New Jersey Government Relations Director. American Cancer Society. Then we have Dr. Eric Costanza, who is pulmonary uh, medicine, critical care medicine at Hackensack Meridian Health. And then, last but not least, Abigail Thompson, Youth Prevention Manager, Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas, Health Institute for Prevention and Recovery. Long titles, but why don't I, um, Ab can we start with you, 
I'm sorry, I'm gonna use last names because it gets complicated in the second panel. Miss Thompson, can we start with you? Um, we're gonna, the slides are actually gonna be sort of behind you. Oh, or not quite. Um, so as you're talking, you can just indicate and Rachel will. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I am so honored to be part of the panel this morning um, and be amongst and hear from so many different experts. Um, so as you heard, I work for the RWJ Barnabas Health Institute for Prevention and Recovery. So just to give you all a brief overview of what we have been doing from the healthcare systems perspective. Um, so if you could go to the next slide. Um, so we, uh, for about the past two years now, so even though vaping has really kind of come into the spotlight in terms of hospitalization, sicknesses, and deaths in the past couple of months, for about the past two years, we have been taking a look at the epidemic. Um, I first heard about it from a group of high school students who told me about Jules. I searched J-E-W-L-S on Google, which we all know did not get me where I wanted to be. Um, and since then, we really have worked to put together a multi-pronged approach to addressing this epidemic. And the first thing that really we really worked to do from the prevention end was education. So since May 2018, uh, we have trained over 900 school personnel. So this includes elementary, middle school, high school, and university level. So educating staff members who are on the front lines in dealing with this issue. Um, and this also tied into community agencies and community members. So parents, um, youth serving organizations, other systems within the community to make sure that they were aware of this issue. Um, and then also turning to youth. So we've educated about 2,400 youth and this number is growing. Um, and this is perhaps most exciting through um, another approach that we've done of peer-to-peer -peer education. So we currently have 152 youth peer educators who will be going down into younger grades. So they range from high school and middle school students who are now educating their peers as we know that that's a very effective method and any young person you'll talk to, they are very worried about their classmates, they're very passionate about this issue, um, and they see it on the front lines day to day, whether they have a friend who's vaping, they're vaping themselves, or they can't go to the restroom within their school because they're called jewel rooms and that's where kids are going to vape. Um, so that is something, and if you could go to the next slide. Um, so we have also created an Escape the Vape Task Force um, with the prosecutor to work on this education component, and again, this really goes back to building capacity within the community and spreading that education. Um, and then the next prong, the next slide. Um, so through the Institute you heard, we do have uh, nicotine and tobacco recovery services, which are offered in seven counties. It's an eight week comprehensive program that's not done in isolation. It's conducted by a certified tobacco treatment specialist, but we're also looking at the individual on the whole, looking at their environment um, and consulting with their primary care physician or a pediatrician. So this is for all ages. Nicotine replacement therapy is provided um, and it also is free, which is a really big pro for the community. Community. Um, and then last but not least on the last slide, um, so we did, of course, we've talked about education, we heard about policy change, which is also something that we are looking at, um, and cessation. So one of the biggest lines that has stood out to me since my start at the hospital system is a saying um, from Connie Green, who's in the audience, is that education alone will not change behavior. We are very well aware of that in the prevention world. We know that to start, we need to educate the community, but we need to address it in various different ways as well. Um, so we're very happy to be here today to discuss that um, and kind of our role and however we can best assist New Jersey to end this youth vaping epidemic. Well, uh, I'd like to um, 
also state that I'm very honored to be here. I've been part of several roundtable discussions with uh, with vaping as our primary uh, objective and target. And as um, a pulmonary critical care specialist, I, I, I'd like to quickly tell an anecdote of an evolving process. And over the last couple of years, and remember in medicine, um, as stated earlier and much more eloquently, is, is really about evidence base. You never want to practice empiric or what I've seen this based medicine. And you really want to have a substantial amount of uh, educational support and, uh, behind you when you, when, you, when you take a stance or when you, when you um, move forward on something. And um, in the last 24 to 36 months, our, our institution, Jersey Shore University Medical Center and Shore Pulmonary Associates, of which I'm a, I'm a partner, have noticed a spike in acute respiratory illnesses among young adults, age 18 to about 35. And we saw this both in the emergency room and also in our offices. Um, and uh, it took a little while uh, to sort of tease this out, but we have become very solid and um, really pinpoint in ruling out bacterial and viral infections. And when you tease through these charts, there was a common thread, and that common thread was near recent or recent initiation of tobacco-related or vaping-related products. And what we were seeing and what we have seen is acute respiratory illness, acute inflammation with really toxic burns to the lungs, whether it be through vitamin E, through menthol, through whatever substances that we are yet to discover that are in these uh, products, we are seeing a process where there's an impedance, there's a block in the way we pick up oxygen and exchange carbon dioxide, which is basically what my life is based on, ventilation and oxygenation. And what we're seeing is that there's acute inflammation in the lungs and the way we're picking up oxygen is severely impaired. Now this is manifested as acute respiratory illnesses, whether it be flu-like symptoms, whether it be hypoxemia, hunger, hunger for oxygen. But what we're really seeing is acute illnesses in the lung, acute toxicity in the lung, and at least a handful of these cases have needed escalation of care in the last 12 months to the critical care setting of which we, um, I, I run at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. Uh, one of which has uh, recently been on a respirator and um, requiring advanced life support. So this is a very real epidemic and I, I like to describe it as a three-headed monster. Um, we finally saw, as a healthcare community, a dip in, in smoking and, and asking about smoking and do you smoke, we started getting more no's than yes and, you know, and that was a, a huge victory. And then all of a sudden came, came this replacement product. And uh, the, the three-headed monster starts with availability, concealability. I think I read something very interesting that there was a, student, uh, a teacher in a high school setting and there were jewels and other products placed around the classroom. And I think out of 20 products, she was only able to identify three of them as, as, as um, cartridges or, or delivery mechanisms. So they're conceivable, they're easily available. And, and as stated uh, numerous times, we're really marketed towards becoming um, and targeting the young adults. Uh, it became very popularized. All you have to do is look at social media with the big cloud and puff of smoke and, and, and realize how popular this is uh, to, to the young adults, to the young adults. And so with this three-headed monster, um, our institution, Hackensack Meridian, has felt that the best way to combat this is with education, but education at the grassroots, getting out into the high schools. We've done a couple of roundtable discussions in, in the high school setting, which I enjoy tremendously. And I think to piggyback onto what you had just stated, I think peer-to-peer -peer education and targeting the, targeting the youth to educate youth is, is a really uh, brilliant strategy because 
It is true. Going to the bathroom is now become an episode where you're walking into a cloud of vape, a cloud of smoke. And um, as, as a father of, of five children and as a physician in, in the pulmonary world, this is very alarming. So I, um, I believe that we need to attack this aggressively from a legislation, from an educational perspective, and to really get out into the community as, as we are doing and uh, highlight the risks. This is a risk of creating nicotine-dependent young adults, which was what we strove to eliminate. And so now we have a replacement product that has acute, toxic, damaging effects to the lungs, resulting in over 47 deaths, and, and I believe that that number is underrepresented, and, and to, um, to sort of, my approach to this is that I believe that this is the tip of the iceberg. I think that what we're seeing is far less than what's actually occurring. I think young adults feel vulnerable, uh, feel invincible, and you know, what may present to a virus to me, which would sort of sideline me for a week um, is ignored and I don't think we're seeing all of the uh, true cases of acute illness. I will tell you my last little story was a football player who um, yeah, I, uh, you know recently was vaping maybe maybe his play on the on the f f uh, field was dipping a little bit well, and we brought him in, into the office and we did pulmonary function tests and this is a young adult who had evidence of obstructive lung disease which is what you see with emphysema and COPD also with asthma but he had no personal history of asthma and so we saw real reproducible damage in a physiologic test directly linked to um, you know at, at least a common thread which was vaping so we're seeing it in the critical care setting we're seeing it in our offices and this is something we have to be very aggressive about combating on all fronts good morning everybody uh, my name is Sam D Almeida I am the New Jersey government relations director for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network I too am honored to be here this morning for this discussion and I appreciate the invitation um, I have been working on this issue I've been with the Cancer Society for a little bit over a year now but I've been working on this issue um, since I started. It's been something that we've been out in front of even before the epidemic and the deaths uh, started to be reported. It was something that we recognized as an issue. Um, and frankly, I've been educating and lobbying lawmakers to do something about this. Um, I'm glad that we are finally at the point where something will be done. Um, but I believe our kids in New Jersey deserve better. I, I think that, you know, we have some startling statistics. 2,800 New Jersey kids become daily new, new smokers every year. That's a lot. Um, and that feeds into our health care costs. And there's a tremendous amount of burden placed on just the healthcare system in general. All of you, the majority of you raised your hands when the former commissioner asked how we're doing in public health. Well, we're trying to take steps forward and enact policies such as this to help in that realm. Um, I would also like to mention that we're not just advocating for um, a flavor ban on e-cigarettes. We want all flavored tobacco products to be banned. We know that once, say, e-cigarette flavors are banned, kids are going to tra traditionally transition to a different product. They're going to move to cigarillos or little cigars, uh, menthol cigarettes that plague minority communities. We've seen it. We've seen it when um, federal government banned uh, flavored cigarettes. There was an uptick in those cigarillo sales. So I truly believe that we could do better, and I'm very excited to, to hear the panel uh, after this one. Thank you. Oh. Is that, That's it. You all said it? Yep. 
Um, so we have a lot to uh, to unpack here. Um, Dr. Costanza, I'd like to start with you. Um, one of the questions that we get a lot, um, and it's from, you know, a lot of different uh, a lot of different sectors, if you will, is sort of the the, the question about the science between um, where the damage is, right? Um, so, so putting aside whether or not children should be using these products, let's start with you know the, the, the vitamin E question or the THC question. What in your in the cases that you're looking at, do you see a difference? Um, are you able to tease that kind of information out of users? Sort of, how do you how do you see that playing out in clinically, if you will? I, I think the um, the jury might still be out on that when you when you're dealing with the the front lines and and you know in in a face to face setting with a patient. I think you know the focus in an acutely ill patient is on. Um, securing the airway and, and making sure we're achieving proper oxygenation. I do see um, a trend and, and certainly most of the cases have been associated with flavored products. Um, and I believe that the vitamin E and uh, will, will be a common thread that, that we're going to see more of. But uh, from, um, from um, a clinical perspective and not a research-oriented perspective, I think the common thread is, is near recent or recent initiation of vaping. And, and what we're seeing clinically is three or four different types of inflammation in the lungs. Uh, acute eosinophilic pneumonia, which is um, an inflammatory reaction that, that causes an, an x-ray that should be black to look fluffy and white we're seeing li uh, lipoid pneumonia which can come from the vitamin E products and oil-based products uh, which looks like a pneumonia but it's really uh, uh, from from ingestion of these toxins and then we're seeing acute lung injury and a hypersensitivity reaction which is basically really the common thread clinically what we're seeing at the bedside is hey listen this is a toxin you're in, you're ingesting a large volume of toxin I mean I think the bigger as popularized on social media, the bigger the cloud of, 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 of smoke, the, the more the, the more popular the product is, uh, the more quote unquote cool you look. Um, but just think about the, the bigger the cloud of smoke, the bigger the volume of ingested toxins into your lungs. So I haven't really sat down and teased out at the bedside, you know, you know exactly what may or may not be the root cause of, of why they're presenting with uh, these various respiratory ailments, but the common unifying thread is usually, you know, recent or, or near recent use of flavored products, which I'm thrilled that we're banning. But again, we have to be more aggressive in our, in our total ban. Um, thank you. Um, Ms. Thompson, tell me, I'm curious if where kids are getting these products and, and what you're hearing about. I mean, what are they using them to, for the kids that you're working with or talking to, are we talking about tobacco use? Are they buying them? Where are they getting them and what are they, what are they vaping? Um, so it all really varies. Um, so for the most part, from the young people that I work with, they are getting them from older siblings and even from parents. I believe that the parent provision has slowed down over the past several months, but definitely in the beginning. Um, I mean, we had one story in a school where a parent put one in a lunchbox um, for a high schooler. So they, as they a treat, treat sort as of a listen. treat. Yeah. 
Um, and there have also been parents who have come to us after we've done educational sessions saying, I didn't realize what I was buying and my child asked me to buy it for their birthday and because it was a flavored product, they did go out and purchase it and obviously realized the mistake that they made and then we're working to correct that. Um, I would so definitely from parents, um, at least at first when we're you know a couple of years back in this, um, but now I would say more so older siblings and also from older friends. So of course the age of sale of tobacco products in New Jersey is 21. Um, there are still some retailers out there who think it's 18. So that's something on our broader scope. Um, we and there are groups like mine um, throughout the state, um, the regional coalitions and other municipal alliances, things along those line that, lines that do prevention work that go out and do those checks with retailers, which is really important because at that retail point, obviously needs to be 21. Um, and then when we're just kind of looking at that trickle down, we do absolutely have eighth graders, middle schoolers who are vaping, which means they may have siblings who are in elementary school, which means that we also have third, fourth graders who are at least trying. Um, so I would really say it's on the social side of things as compared to retail access predominantly from what I've seen. Um, there also is the possibility of online purchasing, uh, which they have cracked down on and do now require more checks with that um, and ID checks, but definitely from the adults and the older individuals in their lives. Dr. Costanza, you're nodding, yeah. One of the, um, I think, the best parts of, of doing roundtable discussions in the high school setting was that um, I agree with everything you said, and one of the, the, the bigger venues for obtaining these products was actually online, online purchases, because a lot of accounts are linked to adults whose age is represented, and I don't really know how that stuff works other than packages show up at my house every day. Um, but um, I, I, do, I do believe, you know, again, going back to the analogy of the three-headed monster, it's, it's very easy to, to obtain these products. And, and, and from the high school students at the one setting we were at, it was, it was a big concern from the parents and from some of the peer advocates of, of online purchases. Yes, absolutely. Um, and just on that note as well, um, and I, I think it's a fine line when we discuss social media because I do think that it absolutely is a tool that our young people use for positive things. Um, and a lot of young people that I'll talk to, they can rattle off more facts about vaping than I can. Um, and that is because they do watch PSAs that the Truth Initiative has put out or they watch stories on Snapchat that talk about vaping. So there absolutely is a positive, but there are just as many young people who will say, that's also a point of sale between individuals. Um, even recently I heard um, a shopping cart emoji. So if you see your child sending one of those, that is specifically looking for carts, which would be THC oil containing pods from young. That's just, you know, so just, just Wait, to be- carts is the term? Carts, yeah. Um, so, but I mean, it, it goes, there's, there's different uses for those platforms. Uh, to, to buy and sell as well. And again, we're talking about young people here. I'm really am only working with high schoolers and middle school, um, but to be mindful of that is both a blessing and a curse to some extent. I think that's a good point. Um, Mr. D'Almeida, sorry. Um, I'm wondering how, I mean, there is there is an element, uh, I mean, obviously in the, in the video we saw in the beginning, um, there is a question about harm reduction, right? Um, the industry has put this forward as a, as a sort of a harm reduction tool. Um, how do you see that in your work? I mean, you know, Cancer Society obviously is focused on cigarette, you know, or was originally focused on cigarette smoking. Sort of, how do you how do you balance that at at, the, at your organization, and sort of how do you approach that 
Sure. Um, I, I think uh, Dr. Costanza would um, agree with my sentiment that your lungs really only want air. Um, I think that's a pretty simple premise that he would agree with. Um, so uh, former Commissioner Elna Hall did mention um, some of the talking points related to, to harm reduction. Um, one of the pieces that I find um, the most controversial and that I, when I point out, I try and be sensitive to this is folks will say, I quit smoking using an e-cigarette. Right. And they'll take the e-cigarette out and they'll vape in front of me. And I'll say, well, then you didn't quit smoking. You are still using a tobacco product. Based on definitions, that is a to tobacco product. Um, the ultimate goal would, to get these, would be to get these folks off smoking completely. Um, we know that the majority of smokers want to quit. So getting them the cessation devices and treatments that are available and approved through the FDA, we, we want to see those individuals be able to quit and hopefully reduce the burden of tobacco on their lives. Dr. Costanza, I'm curious though, because I mean, obviously there are different risks, right? I mean, if we're talking about vaping, we're talking about um, a tobacco addiction risk. If you're talking about smoking cigarettes, you're talking about other risks. I mean, there, there, there are risks on both sides, but cancer doesn't seem, or at least that we know of, doesn't seem to fall on the vaping side of the equation that I know of. Um, or, or how do you calculate that, I guess is my question, when you're talking to, to patients? thinking about this stuff? Well, I think... Or is it the unknown, maybe? I, I think it is an unknown. And I think with an unknown as, 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 a, as an educator... Because, and as I'm a, sorry, as you know, the argument is, well, well, combustible cigarettes cause cancer. So in some ways, that's far worse than a, a nicotine addiction, which on its own is not a deadly addiction, as I understand it. I mean, I'm sure there are complications and there are people that can die, but... Um, but that's not why people are dying. They're not dying. I mean, the, the people who have died of vaping-related issues have not died because of nicotine addiction. They've died of other issues. So it's hard to tease it all out here. But my point is, is there room for that in, in your discussion? Like, I think so. And I, I think that the way I look at it is I think the, the jury is still out on the cancer risk. But I think if you look at, at, at some of the statistics, and again, this... I believe that we're creating a generation of young adults that are going to transition over to uh, actually smoking. Uh, and I think inherently that might be the link that ties your cancer risk. Um, I can't sit here and say that I know of or am aware of the literature with regards to uh, vaping related products and, and, and cancer. But I can say that, you know, nicotine is, is, a, is, a, is a, it's a nasty, addictive substance, and I think that if you become addicted to nicotine, I think what we're seeing is a transition, exactly what we hope to prevent, people transitioning from uh, tobacco products to an increased use of tobacco products, and you don't have to be that creative to see that this will lead to 30, 40, 50 year olds and an increase and a higher spike down the line in, in tobacco products, which would maybe link us to our uh, education and discussions we have about cancer risk and, and vaping. If Please. I may, just to follow up, um, we are seeing that there are dual users as well. So it's not just that these young people are using e-cigarettes and that's it. Um, the conversation needs to be broadened in the terms of cancer because they are utilizing other tobacco products as well. If they cannot get their carts, um, I guess that's the term that they're using, um, then they are utilizing whatever nicotine product they can get their hands on. 
Um, Ms. Thompson, we got a question, which I think is a good one from the audience about um, people who claim to that vaping has helped um, them get off other drugs and alcohol, not or drugs and alcohol, not cigarettes. Is that something you run into much in your work? I, I haven't necessarily he heard much about that, but. Um, so me. from, I really work with young people, yeah, um, I mean, so that's not quite my wheelhouse. Yeah, probably haven't gotten to that point. But from the prevention world, what we do know um, is the later we can delay onset of use, the better off a young person is. So the brain does not develop until the age of 25. So if you have a young person who is now experimenting with a nicotine product at the age of 12, 13, that means that their brain is then, so you say 13 years of time developing with nicotine present, which permanently alters wiring of the brain in addition to other things that are going on um, and then that could potentially make them predisposed to using another substance so really again in the prevention world we're looking to delay that onset of use because we know it's not good for them as developing young people okay I'm curious for all for any of you is there any um, are there things we're seeing in New Jersey that are different from in other states um, I don't know dr. Costanza do you talk to folks in other states and and what are you hearing from your colleagues I mean are they seeing similar cases or I think we're all pretty much seeing the same same thing a big a big spike in utilization and a big uh, awareness and 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 um, recognition that there is a, a link in the in the younger population presenting with acute lung injury so I haven't had extensive conversations with a lot of colleagues from um, around around different states but I, I, I believe they're seeing the same the same dangerous trend and and I, I think the scariest trend is that it's trickled beyond high school and into the middle school and I, I that is one unifying uh, thread that I've heard from you know uh, colleagues at different conferences and, and my pediatric pulmonary associates that you know I chat with um, that they're seeing it at, at their age and one, one of one of the cases indeed at, at, at our institution was in the pediatric ICU so um, you know I I, I, I believe we're all seeing the same mm -hmm. the same thing do either of you want to address that? Sing. I will just say on the positive side of things, I think that and even today's event is an extraordinary example of that, that the community truly has come together to get opinions from different sides and to have a positive discussion. Um, and just like as you mentioned before, the education that really is the first step of making people aware and so many different systems, um, the New Jersey Prevention Network, the Department of Health, um, the Department of uh, DMHAS has really, everybody has truly come together to address this issue. Um, and I think that that's really important that we're just even having this conversation. Um, New Jersey has always been kind of at the forefront of that in addressing public health. So I think just kind of on a positive. Yeah, that. and as you probably know, we're going to have the second panel. We'll talk a lot about the some of the solutions that are on the table here and, and perhaps in other states as well. Um, we're getting a couple, some good questions from Twitter. Um, a lot of questions about the vitamin E acetate and that that is that a hundred percent of the deaths are related to that is that how much does that come up in I don't, it, Mr. Diomeda do you see that I mean do you get into that kind of parsing of of this issue in your work and how does that, how does that come into the work that you're doing I mean the bands that we've been talking about in New Jersey at least would be for flavored products they'd be sort of much more widespread do you how do you parse that so it certainly comes up in conversations with legislators and other advocates um, one thing that 
I would like to mention in that space is that these kids traditionally did not start with that product. Usually they start with a different product, a different e-cigarette product um, that gets them hooked and then they transition to something with vitamin E acetate, as you, you mentioned, and that harms them. Um, again, the jury's out on the long-term effects of e-cigarettes, and I like to think that if we could go back uh, to past generations where we didn't know what smoking um, was doing to our bodies, that if we had all that inform the information that we do now, that we would shut it down at an earlier time. Um, so at this point, I, I think that we need to do the research and then, like I said, there's outlets for these products if they um, truly want to be cessation devices for them to funnel through the FDA and apply to do so. And we did get a we did get another Twitter. I think there are a lot of uh, pro vapers on Twitter this morning. Um, how do you fail to acknowledge uh, vaping flavored nicotine as a harm reduction method? Um, I think we have discussed that. I, I believe we have in several ways, but. Um, Vaping does not equate to smoking cigarettes. So we also had another question about the level of nicotine in vaping. Do any of you want to address sort of the differences there? Um, can you, Sam? Sure. So one jewel pod is equivalent to 20 cigarettes. Um, most of these kids do not realize that. Um, some fail to acknowledge that there's any nicotine in there at all. They just don't know. Um, some will go through a whole jewel pod in a day. Um, they say they wake up with, with cravings. They actually sleep with the devices in their hands so that they can do that first hit in the morning and get that high. Um, so I know that the, the vape products, other vape products, um, allow you to add, add nicotine and they have varying levels and um, you can go up or down uh, depending on what the product is. Um, I think it's I think it's all very dangerous. Anything with nicotine, especially with young folks, as, as Abby mentioned, you're they're at a critical time where their brain is being hardwired. So we know that if you start smoking at a young age, especially before your brain is fully developed, you are likely to be a lifelong smoker. It will be much harder for you to quit. Um, so I will also say, um, so products, so Juul initially when they came out into the market, um, they use a patent in technology that utilizes nicotine salts. So basically this technology, um, they add an acid to the solution of liquid nicotine, um, which makes it easier to inhale at a faster rate. So you are inhaling a much higher level of nicotine into your body um, because it's more tolerable because it's not, it doesn't burn in the same way as it would for a traditional cigarette. So, mm -hmm. so um, for a lot of kids, like you said, at least when they first start using, they would tell you they kind of had that head rush or that buzz. Um, so that is a technology that was unique to Juul. I do believe that other companies have kind of mimicked that. Um, so that variation of nicotine, it changes from product to product. And we also do have young people, again, on the online note, and I, I know this kind of sounds crazy, um, but there are absolutely young people who will buy pure liquid nicotine, which we also know is very, very, very harmful, harmful if somebody were to ingest it and also could cause issues for young children or pets, of course, if they're having pure liquid nicotine. Um, but young people who are mixing their own juices. Um, there are plenty of videos on YouTube which will show you how to hack a jewel pod, how you can open it up, use a syringe to refill it, and there are plenty of young people who I work with who have said that they do that or they know peers who do. So there are regulated products. 
um, that are prepackaged. There are vape shops, and there are also young people who are mixing these products themselves, so that nicotine concentration can really, really vary. Um, and I, I mean, there were just recently a couple cases down in West Virginia where there was fentanyl found in vapes that were laced because they were they were mixed um, and there were two young people who overdosed as a result of that so it varies what's in there um, and you can really kind of change that because there are pods that open Please. Just to just to follow up, um, this industry is largely unregulated as well, um, and that's a, a big problem in the nicotine space and the products and the ingredients that go into um, the solutions that these individuals are smoking. So, as of you know, as of now and up until 2021, I believe Juul has a waiver um, that they are you know, with, have with the federal government that they don't have to abide by the same traditional rules that other tobacco products do. Um, so it's a bit of the Wild West at this point, and we're trying to kind of corral that. Do we know anything about secondhand vape smoke? That was another question that I think came from Twitter. We know it's not good. Um, <laughs> again, just to touch on that, we know that your your lungs only want air. Um, any foreign substances, um, your your body doesn't want. And certainly, somebody like myself, I have asthma. Even being in the room with somebody that um, you know who's utilizing a, a vape product or an e-cigarette, um, no matter how small that cloud is, um, it tends to to bother me. Um, I'm you know predisposed to that, but. We know that for individuals that are smoking indoors, we're seeing that a lot. We've we've done a lot of work with clean indoor air, and um, you know made major headway in New Jersey on, on that legislation. Um, but they're not equating that to smoking indoors. So there's a lot of issues with this that um, we're seeing as far as secondhand goes. Yeah. Um, and I also will, so this is something that we've been working on with our language when we're talking to the community. So what the individual is inhaling and inhaling back out is actually an aerosol, it's not vapor. So at first that was a really big misconception that it's just water vapor, it's just water with flavoring, you're inhaling a vapor and exhaling it back out, but it's an aerosol. So that means that there are particles suspended within that cloud, which not only are you inhaling as the user, but exhaling back out. So there has been an indication uh, from out hide and vapes, lead, and this could be in the juice or the device itself. Um, so that doesn't just dissipate into thin air, it is going into your lungs and also settling back out into the environment around you, um, which also they're talking about third-hand impacts as well. Um, and there are also even, and I think this just kind of plays into the culture around vaping, there are specific sprays that you can purchase to clean the residue off the inside of your car. I, I don't know if kids are using them, they're telling me about them, I kind of have to do research on everything they tell me, um, but that exists. So you, when you're just kind of thinking about what you're exhaling back out, again, it is, there's, it's not just water and flavoring or not just water and liquid nicotine, there are various components in there that you're inhaling and exhaling back out in that aerosol. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, solutions. So we got a great question on uh, what's the best practice for youth vaping cessation. I'm sorry, I'm going to give the mic right back. <laughs> um, so uh, I will say, so we have done, and there are so many agencies that have done a tremendous amount of work around education in this this 
area of youth vaping. Um, so at this point, I would say we're starting to kind of see that tipping point where young people are aware that there is nicotine in these products, and now they really are eager for cessation. Um, a lot of young people have said, I don't know where to go. I'm scared. I'm scared I'm going to get sick. I want to help my friend. I want to help myself. Um, what do I do? So one of the big things, of course, um, through the nicotine and tobacco recovery services, through the uh, RWJ Barnabas Health System, we do accept individuals of any age. Um, so that is really a big pro, um, and there is a referral system for that process to happen. And I would also say for any parent who's listening, um, talk with your kids about vaping. I'm sure even if they're vaping or not, they want to have a discussion with you. And just to plant it with them, um, New Jersey does have a very unique position within schools. They're called Student Assistance Coordinators, or SACs for short. So a lot of the SACs in New Jersey have been addressing this issue with their young people. And if young people go to their SAC and have a conversation about vaping, they will work to link them with treatment. That is also a confidential conversation as SACs are held under federal law, which requires to keep that confidential unless they are a harm to themselves or another person. Of course, there are situations when they would need to report that. That. So um, for parents or young people listening, definitely go talk to your guidance counselor or your SAC in the school. They will link you to cessation. And that really is where we need to go, especially if there is a ban on flavors. Um, as we talked about, there could be that transition into flavored tobacco products. So it's really, really important that we put funding towards or just resources behind cessation for young people. We saw you can't arrest your way out of the opiate epidemic. Um, you can't suspend your way out of a nicotine dependency. You can't just send kids to ISS um, and have them sit there. You can't send them home because they're just going to vape more. So we understand from the prevention world that we need to follow certain laws and regulations that are in place, but we also need to ensure that we're providing a non-punitive approach and giving access to cessation resources. I, I, I agree. I, I think the solution really comes from um, <clears throat> the education of of the, the young younger generation, and I, I think that I think empowering them and having as a parent uh, open dialogue with your children about uh, some of the risks. I still I know we we might be nearing the tipping point of the uh, awareness that there's nicotine in these products, but I'm still shocked at the amount of, um, you know, teenagers that say, I, I, no, there's no nicotine. Uh, this isn't dangerous for me. This isn't addictive. Um, and, and to me, I think that the solution starts with, you know, education and, and, and really getting out into the community, into the high schools. I, I really enjoy the forum of being in, in the high school setting and, and hearing what, what children uh, and young adults uh, have to say and peer leaders, I think. At, and they do want to talk about this? Uh, I mean, I was surprised when you said that. They absolutely want to engage. Uh, um, um, at one of the recent events that, that I was uh, fortunate to take part in, um, the, the, vocal, the, the, the more vocal contingent was the student body. Uh, who asked questions, were very interested in, in some of the side effects, some of the acute reactions that can happen, and also really about how their interactions with their parent, you know, it can't, it can't be, you know, no, it's bad, you can't do it. You, it. That doesn't work anymore. You have to educate and and explain and really allow for a platform where you have healthy dialogue. And I, I, think, I think the solution starts with education and an awareness by educators, parents, you know, to have healthy, open dialogue about, about all aspects of things we know, things that are proven, things we might know, things that could potentially happen. And I think really highlighting the dual utilization of products, especially as, you know, we, we trend towards more regulation is, is very important. 
Interesting. Um, before you pass the mic uh, to Sam, because I want to hear your answer as well, but I'm just curious, we, part of, another part of that question was about increasing access to pulmonary function testing um, to help electronic device users um, start to seek cessation. Is that something that is offered freely, or how easy is it to get those kinds of tests? And is that important, I guess, in the question? In the, in the grand scheme of thing, uh, uh, things, linking physiology to, to an event is always important. I think that's where the science of, of medicine comes in. I mean, as a, as a, pulmon a pulmonologist, I, I can say it's pretty easy to get pulmonary function tests, um, but that would be self-serving because they're in our office. Um, um, I, I don't know how freely available they are. I, I, I can't speak on that. Um, do I think it's important? I think it's always nice to see things. I think it's always nice for, for teenagers to see an x-ray of what acute lung injury looks like. I think it would be nice to see, hey, look, this is your lung function and this is your capacity decreased. Um, whenever you can att attach concrete data to, to impressionable uh, young adults, I, I think it carries substantially more weight. Um, in terms of the availability of pulmonary function testing, um, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, I know that every pulmonologist, I mean, you know, we offer it in, in, in our locations. But I'm wondering how, I mean, I'm wondering if that's, a, if that's a decision point. I mean, maybe it would help some people, but the point being, even if you haven't lost lung function, maybe it's a good idea to, yeah, you know. I, I don't know that that is essential to our, our solution algorithm. Right. I think that, right. you know, even if you had severe asthmatics, you know, you might have normal pulmonary function testing, you know. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a weapon in the arsenal, but I don't, I don't think it's something that needs to be um, utilized or at the forefront or even, you know, a regular part of the, the process. Sam, do you want to? Just to follow up quickly, um, my colleagues mentioned education. Um, I believe our, our schools in New Jersey, at least from my generation standpoint, had DARE programs. And those DARE programs did a really great job at educating us and showing us graphic pictures of what cigarette smoking and tobacco use does to the body. Um, I don't know, you know necessarily that there was an e-cigarette kind of component to those programs, um, but I believe there needs to be. and. You know, that education, like programs um, or groups such as like Incorruptible Us, which is a youth program, um, peer on peer, and they talk to other students about what's actually in these products and how um, they can transition off, or just a, somebody that they can kind of give guidance to. Um, I think it's, it's also important that, um, you know, parents be very aware of these things as, as we were talking about before, you know, having these devices um, be very discreet makes it easy to hide these things. Uh, the governor did mention, you know, different products that I have, hadn't even known about, like backpacks and sweatshirts that had um, kind of secret compartments where it would make it very easy for these individuals to smoke during classroom. Right. And that was one of the governor's proposals out of his task force was to ban the sale the of accessories, that of clothing and accessories. Yeah. So, so it's while it's important for the cessation aspect, we certainly want to make sure that the education goes with it. Um, New Jersey is right now funding tobacco prevention programs at seven percent of what the CDC recommends. So we're at like seven point two million um, with they our do last budget. That number. So aggressively. Yes, um, but we're we're doing better than we have in in past years, but we still have a long way to go, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. 
one of the talking points among some of the students I have sat down with is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the D.A.R.E. programs um, really have a, a presence in, in the middle school, but sort of fade off as you transition into high school. And uh, that was one of the uh, solutions that actually came from a peer leader, uh, I, I think a junior in high school, that, that maybe these, these programs can be extended. And I don't know if they are or not, um, but maybe be extended to the high school setting and, and, and maybe with more of an emphasis on, on vaping and vaping-related products. That's interesting. Um, we've gotten versions of this question, but this one's pretty, pretty direct. Uh, why are adults being punished for illegal acts of minors and ne ne negligent parents? Vaping is for adults. Are we being unfair on adults? Does anybody want to take a crack at that? Oh. <laughs> I mean, we're, this is going to come up in the next panel as well. So, I'll start. Um, so, in my in my opinion, I don't believe we're being unfair to adults. I believe we're trying to do the best thing that we can for public health, and that includes protecting adults. Um, these products are heavily marketed towards children, so yes, that's the emphasis right now. Um, but we're doing our best to make sure that, again, we talked about the tobacco epidemic and um, how past generations were affected. Um, if we had all the information that we have now, would we? Can, would we make those mistakes again? So why not do the research um, if these products are truly cessation devices? Like I said, there's a pathway there. They can um, put in their application with the FDA, go through the process, get approved, and then they would be carved out of any of this legislation. Um, so like I said, there's an easy pathway to mitigate all of this if they truly believe they're cessation devices. Anybody else? One final question then, um, quick lightning round, if I may. Um, if you had one, yeah, we'll start here and just go down the line. If you had one, um, doesn't have to be one word, but one thing to suggest to poly policymakers in the state, um, you know, if they could wave their magic policy wand and change one thing, what would you ask that to be? And anybody want to start? I'll keep talking. Do you want to start? Sure. Right, exactly. I've been actively working on this, so I, this is something that uh, I guess I have Christmas my talking points prepared. Yes, I have my list. list ready? Okay. Um, Give us I, the top. I would ask all policymakers in the state and the governor to address all flavored tobacco. Um, do not allow for disparities and leave communities out in the cold. E-cigarettes um, certainly affect uh, the youth population, but there are certain minority communities that are um, using menthol and these small cigarillos and flavored cigars. We're not talking about premium cigars. We're talking about like cherry flavored cigars that, you know, youth are smoking. Um, they're not smoking Cuban cigars. So I would ask that we ban all flavored tobacco products so that we don't have to come back and readdress this issue when there is then an uptick in um, cigarillo or flavored cigar sales. Dr. Costanza? I think this question is a little out of my wheelhouse, um, but in terms of what I would, would like to see, I, I agree with the banning of all flavored products, and I think with any legislative movement, I'd, I'd like to see an emphasis and a focus on, on education and access to resources for um, addicted young adults. Thank you. Yeah, for kids who are already addicted. Right, good point. 
Um, and I think probably, so we saw, we, we need to keep our foot on the gas. Um, so there used to be funding in schools for tobacco prevention education, and we lost funding for that. Um, so, and now again, we kind of had this uptick in tobacco product use, nicotine product use. So I think that we need to keep our eyes on both sides of the prevention and cessation side of things. So that really would be what I would encourage lawmakers to look at. Um, just, you know, we need to keep our foot on the gas in the prevention world on that education and awareness, but we also need to provide adequate resources to help young people to stop using these products. Because um, if we don't, you know, we know that nine out of a ten, nine out of ten adult smokers, and again, th that's a number for cigarettes. They started before they were eighteen, and that chemical is the same. It's nicotine. So nicotine is the third most addictive chemical in the world, behind heroin and cocaine. When they look at research studies, so that chemical is the same. Um, so we need to continue to educate young people, talk to young people, but then also provide them with cessation. Because without that. Um, it's going to be a lot harder for them to stop using. And then we look at a generation of guinea pig teenagers um, who are now going to potentially be lifelong users of nicotine products. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank my panel, Abigail Thompson, Dr. Costanza, and Sam D'Almeida. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, the discussion on, on uh, Twitter has been uh, equally passionate, so um, I really appreciate the folks out there who are watching and, and, and joining this. We are, are you leaving us, Lilo? Are you? <laughs> yeah, they're coming. So we're going to go right into our second panel. Um, we're we're going to switch out our mugs. This is our one swag for the speakers. Um, and then we're going to get going. You ready? Here we go. Panel two. We have Assemblyman Herb Conway, Jr. Chair of the Assembly Health and Senior Services Committee. Um, Greg Connolly, President of the American Vaping Association. This is not a one-sided event, for those on Twitter who thought it was. Um, Sen <laughs> Senator Joe Vitale, Chair, Senate Health, Human Services, and Senior Citizens Committee. Um, this is the panel in which we are going to talk about solutions, both what's been proposed in New Jersey and possibly get into a little bit um, what's going on elsewhere uh, in the world. So why don't we start with you, since you have the mic. Senator Vitale, take it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks uh, to New Jersey Spotlight for hosting this and for everyone for turning out today, both in person and see our great uh, former health commissioner, uh, Al Hall, here. Thank you for your remarks earlier, um, and good luck in your new endeavor. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, these issues are uh, complex, uh, but I know that I won't speak for Chairman Conaway, but you know we both see a lot of this as a response to a, a public health crisis, and oh, and overall over the, all the years that we have worked on issues uh, in in the Senate and in the Assembly, uh, really focused on on public health response, whether it's a response to something or there are new initiatives, but really to, to deal with the overall health care of the citizens of our state, and uh, and I'm going to give the Chairman credit, was this is not new to him, uh, certainly not new to me either, but. It was several years ago that we we were concerned about the the effects of of e-cigarettes, particularly with respect to children uh, and their usage. And we've seen, of course, the data is clear about its usage among young people. Uh, and, and you know this overused phrase, but certainly very accurate that you know we're addicting a new generation of young people. Uh, and whether it's intentional or otherwise, whether it's big tobacco trying to. Um, replace the revenue lost by the decrease in usage of combustible tobacco. Uh, the fact of the matter is that young people are using this product, becoming addicted to the nicotine, which is awfully addictive, 
uh, and by and there are hundreds of thousands of them, if not more, uh, who are addicted now to nicotine, and they're they're as young as 12, 13, 14 years old, and it's awful, and it's a public health crisis, and so the legislation that we've drafted is not going to cure all of this. We hope that it'll mitigate uh, prospective usage. Uh, it will protect those young people. Uh, we want to do more in terms of how it is that we address their addiction, because that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, so that's maybe the next step. But uh, uh, I'm pleased to work with him and other members of our committees and legislature trying to address this as what we see as a public health crisis. Thank you. Greg, Greg's going to take it to the floor so he can see his slides. <laughs> I apologize now, to the good representatives for not being able to see my slides. It's a, it's a little logistical problem. <laughs> well, while we wait for it to come down and start, my name is Gregory Conley. I'm born and raised in New Jersey, in Medford, and I went to Rutgers Law School, and it was there, after struggling to quit smoking for many years, that I found an e-cigarette that actually worked for me, and that led me, nine years later, to be here in this room with all of you. And thank you to New Jersey Spotlight. Thank you to all for being here. Uh, you can go to the next slide. I think it's a good starting point to start with the words of Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller, who is the longest serving attorney general in the country, a longtime warrior against the tobacco industry, used to serve on the board of the Truth Initiative with Assemblyman Conaway. And he said at an FDLI meeting just a couple weeks ago, there are two ways to get this issue wrong. Think only about youth with no concern for adults and think only about adults with no concern for youth. So let's start with the adults. In this country, 34 to 36 million Americans still smoke cigarettes. If that is not an epidemic, I don't know what is. And in the US and the UK, data consistently shows that vaping products are not just the most used tool by those seeking to quit smoking, but the most successful. That comes from clinical trials, not just the New England Journal of Medicine clinical trial, but several others. Observational studies, population level studies, the FDA's own longitudinal path data. And as you can see at the top there, the rate of decline of smoking among adults has speedened as vaping has increased among adults. And flavors matter greatly to adults. I failed to quit in 2009 with a tobacco-flavored e-cigarette. It was only when I had one that was melon-flavored that I got off of cigarettes entirely. And that's a survey that was submitted to the FDA over 69,000 adult users, with fruit being the most popular flavor. Every e-liquid, every e-cigarette product is flavored. There is no naturally tobacco-flavored e-liquid. And it's important to know that the longitudinal studies, including the FDA's own data, continues to show that adults who are using tobacco flavors, they are much less likely to become smoke-free. They're not disconnecting themselves from the taste of cigarettes. And when it comes to youth, two charts here, you see on the left, Youth who actually are cigarette smokers, they are much more likely to be frequent users of vaping products. Of course, the ideal is no use of nicotine, marijuana, alcohol, any of those substances by youth, but the vast majority of the frequent usage that is happening is happening among teens who already have experience with tobacco. And on the left there, you see frequent use of e-cigarettes. What we are truly worried about, addiction dependence, it is a much lower number than often is cited, and it's be below 
past month binge drinking, alcohol, marijuana, and just yesterday the 2019 National Youth Tobacco Survey came out, among youth experimenters that year, just 23% said it was flavors that, that made them interested in using vaping products. So it's not just all about flavors. Is it a gateway to smoking? Well, the rate of decline has accelerated greatly among youth. You have not just seen smoking continue to decline, of course it's declining, but you have seen record-setting declines in teen smoking. And what about that generation, the current generation, the 18 to 24-year-olds who five years ago were experimenting with vaping products in their high school? Professor David Levy, no friend of the tobacco industry, he has spent decades doing data modeling in dozens of countries regarding the effects of taxation, of bans, et cetera, on smoking. He says he has never seen a 50% plus reduction in smoking among the 18 to 24 year old cohort as we've seen in the US over just the last few years. The real problem with New Jersey youth, one particular product, Juul. I think it's a great product to get adults off of cigarettes. That's why it was made. But that's Professor Kevin Scroth from Rutgers speaking before the New Jersey Task Force on vaping. 80% of youth regular users are using Juul, not necessarily the products sold by vape shops across New Jersey. His suggestion, ban the sale of these products in gas stations and convenience stores, leave them in adult-only retail stores. And we can discuss that on the panel. So the consequences of a flavor ban, 250 adult-only stores will close because 85%, 90% plus of what they sell are the flavors that some members of the, the Assembly and Senate want to ban. 2,000 jobs lost. The largest flavor manufacturer in America will take their jobs and leave New Jersey. A huge new black market with new health concerns. The youth who are seeking a nicotine buzz from the Juul they will turn to the tobacco-flavored products. Protection of cigarette markets. The stock analysts are actually saying, you can buy Altria stock right now, the makers of Marlboro, because the FDA is gonna destroy their competition. No worries. And last, pushing youth to elicit THC products. It was distressing earlier to hear talk about the lung illnesses and deaths that have gone across this country with no mention until it was pushed of vitamin E acetate. The CDC is increasingly being clear that it is not store-bought nicotine vaping products that are the focus of their investigation. It is illicit THC cartridges filled and sold by drug dealers. These retailers in this room who I urge you to talk to after this presentation, they don't sell illicit THC products. Drug dealers do. There is nothing that this legislature can do other than legalizing marijuana and giving people actual access to these products that will stop people from using illicit marijuana products. And I went a little over my time. I apologize, Lila. Okay. But thank you all. All right, we will reconvene, and I believe Assemblyman Conaway can share a few thoughts. Sir, do you want the microphone? In case you're new, everyone at my school jewels. Something that is literally sweeping the nation. Everywhere I go, it is a whole thing.
Jewel Sesh. We got the Mango Pod. The Cool Cucumber. Fruit Medley. I've got Creme Pod because I thought it would be festive. It tastes great. Well, if you want a head rush, definitely the Jewel. That's really strong. I got bro, give me the biggest neck bust. Oh my god. The Jewel Challenge. You gotta hit this thing as many times as you can. We're doing the Jewel Hotbox Insane Nick Buzz Challenge, you dig? I got some accessories. Jewel wraps. Type in charging case for Jewel. Rolo bag. Sword drop. Ghost stick. This one is watermelon. It is literally so good. <laughs> Oh, to be young. Thank you for underscoring my point that this is a jewel problem. I look forward to your remarks. Thank you and good morning. Well, I thought that uh, I would start to uh, preface my remarks by showing uh, this video uh, so that you and the audience and those, uh, whether you're here in this room or, or on the, listening on the internet, will understand why uh, so many of us who are in public health um, are in this fight. It's an important one that, in my view, we must win. Now, it is, um, uh, you know, what are the, the evils that, uh, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's for those of us who are, are vested with authority uh, in government, who are vested with responsibility, whether you're in the school system or in the, in the research, uh, areas of research. If we don't get this right, if we don't understand the, the existential threat uh, that this phenomenon of, of uh, the use of these electronic devices has with respect to the health of our children, uh, we will doom a generation of, of Americans, of youth, uh, to uh, the chronic long-term effect of nicotine addiction, uh, which will, uh, sadly for many of them, uh, take their lives at the end. We know how this play ends. Lincoln always gets shot. Uh, there, there's, there's no diverting from this. But we have to take uh, as aggressively and as strong a stance to deal with this issue as we can. Now, um, there's been talk about uh, uh, the fact that some adults um, may uh, benefit from uh, the use of this, and, it is, and I would say that it is true, that if you could take uh, and convert everyone from a combustible device to, a, um, to one that is, uh, doesn't use combustion as uh, the means of delivering this nicotine, you would likely deliver less um, harmful products to the lung, and you would extend life. But the, but the problem here, and the way these devices are marketed, with this tremendous uptake by uh, our youth, where I think the latest um, report has been on the radio, as you might expect in other outlets, 28% of high school kids are using this now. This is, these are admitted uh, high school students now. Uh, you know, we know that those things are undervalued, and we're seeing 10% uh, of middle schoolers now using these devices. So you know this, this train has left the station, and we can either stand by and do nothing um, you know, rely on education alone or deal with what is attracting students to the use of these things, the marketing you saw. These are all young kids uh, here engaging in behavior. We know uh, how important um, uh, the cohort is, the, the uh, peer pressure is to the behaviors that young people um, take up. 
so we know that it has negative long-term effects on brain and brain development. We know that people who get involved with this not only do use the electronic devices, they also use um, uh, combustible devices as well. So there's a lot of crossover. We know that the nicotine withdrawal will cause problems uh, for those students as we clamp as down on these on the availability of these products to the youth as we should. And we're seeing uh, that increases anxiety, depression, other uh, emotional systems, even learning uh, disorders are related to the use and exposure to nicotine products at this age. So, um, you know, I'm in this fight uh, to win it. I think for our children, we have to win it. And we have to take very aggressive measures to, to protect children from exposure uh, to these devices. If we don't, we'll regret it. Thank you. Um, before we go further, I forgot to mention that Dr. Conaway is also a doctor um, and uh, and a lawyer, I think, and a pilot, right? I don't do that. Okay, not a pilot okay. anymore. <laughs> Maybe in some settings it comes up, but it wouldn't be this one. <laughs> in any case. I, but uh, I, I wanted to get your thoughts sort of from a clinical perspective as well. Um, in particular, I mean, I do come back to this question of for adults putting the kids on the side for a second. For adults, you know, how do you balance this question of here's a known carcinogen, a traditional combustible cigarette, versus as, you know, we hear from a lot of people who have Greg's story, right? Um, Mr. Conley's story, I'm sorry. Um, and that is, you know, that this product saved their life. How, how do you sort of you know, say you're seeing a patient. How do you balance those two well, in a clinical? Well, to, to be clear, well, we, we, it's a balance, and then we'll uh, talk about the policy. Let's start. With the well, like many things, you you know, what's the worst outcome that you can? It can when you say here? cancer, that sounds like that's, the that, worst. That is that is but. that is certainly very bad. But and, and to be clear, I'm I'm an internist. I deal with adults uh, in my professional, my other professional life. Uh, but I think this question of of how we balance and what we do with respect to adults, how we manage you know, the freedom, if you want to use the word freedom and liberty that adults have versus uh, what uh, we might um, give or expect for children. You know, adults limit their freedom all the time for the sake of their children. Uh, you know, it's, it's the reason why, and I don't know how well it was expected, uh, you know, I was able to use alcohol at the age of 18. We moved that age up to 21. We've seen that we moved the, the um, the ability to buy cigarettes from 19 and then to 21. We have adults often uh, will uh, accept restrictions on their liberty if they, when they understand how important it is to protect their children from from the liberties that they enjoy. And here, if if and this is the same thing in this in this question of using these electronic devices, I believe. And when you look at the polls, I think it's it's 80 percent of adults understand that we need to do something to ban these uh, flavors. 70% of smokers believe we need to ban uh, these flavors. Uh, and so from a, you know, if you just look at those trends, you know, adults are willing and understand how important it is that to have some decrease in the liberty, if you will, uh, in order to protect their children, which for most of us are the most precious um, uh, human beings, if you will. I mean, we're all precious. Uh, we, we all deserve, uh, but people will make sacrifices for their children. And as a society, uh, this is a sacrifice that I think uh, people are more than willing to take. Interesting. Um, yeah, Senator, I'd like, I'd like to you to weigh in a little bit on this. And also, I mean, I'm thinking also as someone who has um, 
led so many bills to reduce traditional smoking in New Jersey. Um, sort of how does this, how does your thinking come around on this? Well, I, and, and her, uh, Dr. Conaway was a part of this effort you know, over uh, probably 10 or 11 years ago when we banned uh, all flavored tobacco products, except for clove except. and menthol, which we're God willing going to do soon. But uh, when we, we were, we banned the sale in New Jersey of flavored tobacco products, uh, combustible products. and. And that was because we found that, uh, not because we didn't want adults to have flavored tobacco, who cares, smoke your brains out, whatever you want to smoke, you smoke. Uh, but we knew that they were attracting young people by the score, every day. Uh, and so we banned those flavors. Uh, so it's the same, it's not just, this isn't theoretical, it is the same thing now about the vaping products. And, you know, so I've, her and I, Dr. Conway and I both have a bill that spans the sale of menthol tobacco products. Uh, and we know that aside from what Big Tobacco did to the African-American community for all those years and how discriminatory and racist they were, we know that menthol tobacco products are the number one tobacco uh, product that young people smoke when they start. Why? Because it's soothing. It's menthol. It, felt, it certainly feels better than taking a hit on a Lucky Strike or some other cigarette. And so they use that. And so it's the same reason why it is that we're hoping to ban these flavors because they attract young people. Now, the issue about adults, and, and I've, we, we had a hearing on this adult, rather on the flavor bill a couple of years ago, and Ms. Connell, you were there for discussion only. And we heard from lots of folks who were trying to quit, and that's more than admirable, uh, that vaping helped them quit or helps is helping them to quit. Even if they're co-using, it's helping them. Uh, and if not for the flavor of their of their choice, and they would not be doing it. And I got to say that, you know, as a reform smoker, you know, I like if you're an adult and you're really serious about quitting, and for the sake of how Dr. Conway says, for the kids in this state, smoke one that this vape on something that tastes like tobacco. You'll get over it. I mean, if you're serious about now, I guess that doesn't work for everyone. But if you're really serious about quitting, that's the way. Or it is that you want to try to. Uh, use an FDA-approved smoking cessation device like the transdermal patch or other methods, right? The inhalers and Shantex and the other uh, 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 drugs that are available today. So, you know, for the sake of inconveniencing or aggravating or discouraging adult use in terms of their willingness to want to quit and using a e-cigarette, uh, ban the flavors, because we have seen historically what that means in terms of adult, or rather, uh, youth usage. And lastly, I just want to say this, and this may or may not come up. Like, I understand the consequences of what this would mean to vape stores. And so the, we do have legislation that I hope gets through that says that these products can only be sold in adult-only locations. Now, I know that, because I know that the vape shops and I have some in my district, I've met with them, they're great guys. I mean, they've invested their life savings and I respect their entrepreneurial spirit and all that stuff, right? However, um, they're going to take a huge hit. We know that. Uh, so if it is that we can then push all of the sales out of convenience stores where we see a percentage of diversion to young people, out of gas stations where we see a percentage of diversion to young people, into the vape stores, the brick and mortar stores, with electronic verification to make sure that you are who you say you are, you are as old as you say you are, then that will help. Well, is it a cure? No, certainly not. Uh, but it's the best we can do. Um, I want to, if you don't mind, I just wanted to sort of set, lay the groundwork on the four, the four or five bills, depending on how you count them, I think. Um, and then 
I want to hear your thoughts on the legislation if we can. I'd love um, to respond to okay. what I just heard. Okay, one second. Hold on. Um, so they're essentially the the bills. The as I as I do you want to do this or do you want me to? Probably you should. No, talk about the actual bills. There's 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 one that would ban flavors. Um, there's one. Yeah, the variable because it's a moving target sometimes. There's a bill that will ban flavors. There's a bill that will um, uh, require electronic verifi age verification and move the, the sale of these products into the uh, the, the stores. Um, there's what else is that we have for yeah. the taxation on that the, the cost of the license itself. I mean, tobacco license is now fifty dollars a year to sell tobacco products. This has been that way forever. That is increased tenfold. Uh, there's a tax on the product itself, uh, and that's about it. It's about the, it's about the high These stuff. I mean, the proposals in place are the main thing. As we get to it again, you know. Perfect. Okay. And if I may Mr. respond Cummins. to some yes. of the claims that were made. It's important people recognize that the nicotine patch, gum, lozenge, if you saw that adult smoking chart, you saw that between around 2005 and 2010, there was virtually zero movement in the adult smoking rate in this country. And one of the reasons why is that every health department in the country has just been repeating the same lines for 25 years. Try the gum, try the patch, try the lozenge. But the reality is, is that when you look at those products, when they're used at the population level, after one year, about 95% of the smokers who try to quit with those products are back to cigarette smoking. So the people who find the most success with vaping, they've tried those products time and time again, just like me. So those products are especially helpful to those inveterate smokers who think, I'm never going to quit. And, le and next, tobacco flavors. Again, the FDA's own longitudinal path data shows that adults who are using tobacco flavors are much more likely to continue to smoke. There's a reason why. If you want someone to disconnect themselves from the taste of a burning cigarette, don't give them a product that's going to mimic the taste of that burning cigarette. And lastly, for the children. Let's talk about what we've done for the children in this country. Alcohol prohibition, the racist and failed war on drugs was justified through the children. The war on marijuana, which has failed spectacularly, was justified for the children. And now you have about 4 million adults in this country who have successfully switched to vaping away from deadly combustible cigarettes, the vast majority of whom are using flavors. And you have some that just say, deal with it. And I don't think that is the correct approach to public health. I, I just let me just let, yeah. look, it, you know, what he is suggesting that we do is for large numbers of people to engage in an experiment to see whether or not these vaping products are actually safe. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's essentially not saying. It, they're not safe. Well, well you let, can't let, say let, that. Let, well, let, well, you said, you, said, you said that people should well, use it as a smoking cessation device. Not one of these devices have gone right. through any kind of FDA approval to prove that they are, in fact, a smoking cessation device. So when you say, say the facts and talk about smoking cessation, the one fact that's important is that the devices that you're claiming are going to help people quit smoking have not been proven to do so. So let's put that fact uh, on the table. So yeah, I, I would like I would like you to uh, to ask to answer the question about um, about FDA approval. I mean, because that's it seems to me a legitimate point. If these are being if 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 the argument is these are these are useful smoking cessation projects, then why not get that official imprimatur? And then 
we also then, I, want, I do want to ask the legislators a little bit about um, some of the other issues you brought up. Why this, why? The, the issue Assemblyman Conway brings up is a very good one. The issue is, is that in this country, smoking cessation is not defined as you and I hear that term and think. You hear the term smoking cessation, you think someone has quit smoking. But under federal law, under FDA rules, you can only submit a product to the FDA if the end point is nicotine cessation. That is not the goal for many vapors who switch over to the products. And not to mention, Tom Burton of the Wall Street Journal just published an article last week about how rigorous and expensive the clinical trial process is for these products. But if you wanted to put a vaping product through the FDA approval process as a cessation device, you would have to spend three years before you ever touched a human. You had to spend three years on animal and cell models. Big, we're, we're talking about big tobacco here. I mean, I don't think, I, I, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. We're not I mean, just talking about big tobacco here. You're talking about about 500, 600 small and medium-sized manufacturers across the United States that have no hope of ever going through that process. So if you want to talk about Juul and whether or not they should find a clinical endpoint for nicotine cessation and go through that process, we can have that discussion. But that is entirely different than the 50% of this market that is not controlled by big tobacco in any way, shape, or form. But should they be operating essentially in a in a legal netherworld? I mean, there's sort of there. It, it's a little bit of an unregulated. How do you, I mean, how do you how do you answer the questions about the all the things we don't know? I mean, that is my question. You know. Well, I can point, I would point you to the, the opinions of Public Health England, the Royal College of Physicians, Cancer Research UK, the New Zealand Department of Health. They have analyzed the data that we do have, extensive biomarkers of harm data from the urine, the blood, the saliva. And their estimate is that the products are at least 95% less harmful than smoking when a smoker switches entirely. And we're talking adults. And we're talking adult smokers. Right. Okay. So. And that's some of those same groups in England also have a different opinion on vaccinations than, than we do in this country. So, you know, I'm not so, well, the Royal, whatever that, I forget the name Royal of it. Royal College of Physicians is against vaccines? No, they have, yeah, no, they are, they're against changing the religious exemptions or they're against changing the, um, any exemption for that matter, unless it's, um, uh, medical. So, I mean, they're, everyone getting vaccines. So that's, that's my point is, is that we're not always aligned in terms of our thinking. So, you know, if Nicoderm and, uh, Shantex and the inhalers that are used and, and all the other products were not effective, were not being used, they wouldn't be on the market. Walk into any Walgreens or, or Rite Aid or any pharmacy and you'll see an entire wall of them. If, those, if they weren't being sold, and I'm not saying they're always successful because quitting smoking is really difficult, uh, but they would, they would not be on those shelves. Just like any other product, because this is a dollar, this is an, the unsum game is, is about the money. Uh, so they do work. And so Look, I feel for, as a, as a reformer, reformed smoker, I can tell you how difficult it is to smoke and all the things I tried to do, including the patch, but eventually wound up with a prescription for Shantex and the inhaler, and it worked, and I was dedicated to doing it. And so I'm not saying that I'm, everyone should has the same either willpower or, or point of view or access or whatever it is, but these are FDA-approved devices that are available through your insurance company. They are covered, I think, sometimes without even a copay. Even if it is, it's $3. So I mean that's so to sort of dismiss the other the other ways in which someone can kick the habit uh, is is really exaggerated I think and so um, but anyway we'll move on to the next. Well, I, let me ask Dr. Conway, Assemblyman Conway, I want to ask you this question about the the larger um, so you have to um, the larger issue of 
why vaping? And I think there are sort of political reasons, and I say that with all respect. This is a process. It has to work. But I mean, you know, we've gotten a number of questions, and, and Mr. Connolly raised it in his opening. I mean, why not alcohol? Why not all cigarettes? Why not guns? Why not, you know, I mean, just this morning I heard 140 people have died of measles worldwide. That is, I mean, and there are vaccine bills that we are arguing over as well, and I know how you feel about that, but why is that not more important per se than the, I think it's now 48 people who have died of, of vaping-related illnesses in this country? Why does, what is in public health terms a small number of people having such an outsized effect? Why do you think that is? Well, uh, vaping itself is having an outsized effect on our children, and look, Legislatures, um, governments uh, will, and it's a question of policy and, and politics, right? Uh, you have to do both well in order to get policies advanced. And quite frankly, uh, a lot of things the government uh, does flows from the will of the people as it should. Now, in this country, there's not a lot of will, as I would like it to be, around dealing with the ravages of alcohol. We need to do a lot better uh, in alcohol and opiates than we're, we're doing. And unfortunately, it will take a crisis to raise uh, the public's attention to then have the legislature come in and take legislative action. There is quite properly uh, in the case of vaping, and particularly vaping among teens and, and and other youth, um, it has been raised uh, in the public attention. I, as I'm out and about, I ask parents who have kids in high school and, and talk to high school kids when at social events and ask them, you know, are kids vaping in your, and they're also, yes, everybody's vaping. Uh, parents say, yes, my kid has t told me about this. People know that there is a problem. And uh, right now we have, for that reason and others, uh, I think a, um, a momentum in the legislature to act in this issue. Now, we can take advantage of that momentum and act um, uh, or not. I think we should. And so why vaping? It's because it's ready. It's ready in place before the public. It's raised in the minds of the people in the legislature. The governor has been uh, out and, uh, with this as well. And so we're ready as a, as a government to move forward. And that's what uh, in the next, um, you know, couple of weeks we're going to do. So it's not a moral argument that this is more important than one of the others. It's a practical argument. Okay. No, no, no. I just have to shorten it down. Uh, yeah. Tell me, I'm curious about sort of the practical part. Look, I mean, if, if we were starting from scratch and, and, and combustible tobacco was a new thing, right? We'd never heard about tobacco plant before. Uh, we'd be weighing in just as much as we're weighing in now, but I mean, that horse is out of the barn. And, uh, you know, it, it's easy to say, well, why not tobacco? Why not alcohol? And why not whatever? Well, you know, it's a little more difficult to, to tell millions of Americans that you can no longer smoke your cigarette, period, whether it's you know, flavored or unflavored, right? So that's a much more difficult uh, fight. And, and clearly, we should be doing more. Fortunately, the number of people who are taking up cigarettes are dropping, uh, although kids are starting to smoke again, and they're using menthol and other flavored products to meet that, um, that desire. Uh, so <clears throat> if we had the opportunity to start from scratch, we would be, right? We would deal with yeah, and that, here's, here's something that's maybe a little more instructive, and maybe a little bit too more to the point, is the reason why there, there are less highway deaths uh, from alcohol uh, is because we spent the last, well, probably 20 years, maybe less, uh, with designated driving, with commercials, with the, 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 with the alcohol companies or industry stepping up their game, requiring them to, but, you know, the dangers of driving and drinking, right? And, and it has reduced the number of deaths. It hasn't eliminated them, but it's reduced them over time. So we've had an opportunity at least to weigh in and there, right? We aren't going to stop, nor should we stop people from drinking. You want to drink, drink yourself silly at home. Don't get in a car, right? Don't, Don't give do it that. to kids. Don't do that. 
Right. Well, yeah, he's a doctor. I. What do I know? Uh, but uh, but you know, drink leisurely, have your drinks, but don't drive. Uh, and so we've we've and it, that sounds simple, but we, it's had an effect. We've engaged college students and fraternities and sororities and others in school to have designated drivers and to be a buddy and a friend in Uber and Lyft and all the other services that are available now. So you don't do something stupid like drink a lot and drive, or you drink a little and drive. So I mean, we have opportunities, and I think that this is our opportunity. You know, we've spent a lot of time on this issue when we listen to every side of the story, and there were more than just two sides, there were three sides, four sides to the story. And we understand the, the angst among those who are in the business and what this might mean to your business. I, I get it. I'm a small business owner. I understand. Uh, however, uh, we're, ho we're hoping that we can mitigate some of the damage by pushing the products to your stores. Uh, but in the meantime, there are, in my school, in my, in my hometown of Woodbridge, where there were three high schools and uh, three middle schools and like 100 elementary schools, I mean, they're vaping like crazy. I see kids walking past my house, not with jewel sticks, some with jewel sticks, some with other devices, vaping from the middle school. So it's a crisis, and eliminating the flavors will solve it long-term for them. And just to point out, um, we did get a question about why not eliminate flavored tobacco as well. That is part of the proposal. I'd uh, like to eliminate flavored yeah. tobacco, by the way. And, sign me up for that one. And <laughs> right. Well, we're. I mean, it's not clear. Well, no, the, I mean, you're talking about in cigars. I'm. I was actually talking about menthol cigarettes. Well, yeah, though they have to go on for that too. Well, you know, I'm for right. That. And but that's a big. Actually, that's a big shift forward because right when you proposed this, I remember when Dr. Conaway first proposed their. Somebody first proposed that years ago. I mean, the pushback was significant um, from, yeah, from the African-American community and others. Um, yeah. Just quickly is the, so we were pleased, Dr. Kern and I, that the, the NAACP New Jersey has endorsed the, the menthol tobacco ban. For years, they did not. Uh, and so we made it very clear to them that, you know, possession is not a crime. Right, possession is not even a civil offense. You can possess as many menthol cigarettes as you want, but if you're selling them, you can't do that after the bill would become law. And so they felt much more comfortable with the, with that, uh, with the legislation. They're supportive. Also, the big tobacco and, of course, you know, big vape uh, took a playbook, their, 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 their marketing shtick from big tobacco, but went to big tobacco for decades, marketed menthol cigarettes directly to the African-American community. By giving not, not only by discounting them, but giving away millions of free cigarettes in black communities, and so where it is that 80 percent or more of all tobacco, of all menthol cigarettes that are smoked in, in this country are smoked by African Americans. The vast majority of African Americans smoke menthol cigarettes. It was a racist is that a crime. I think so. But yeah, I mean it's crazy, right? And so I mean that's and, and it was the same playbook several years ago when Jenny McCarthy and some other B actor. You know, we're on television with their motorcycles and leather jackets telling us, certainly weren't talking to my, to my aunt, right, or my mother. They were talking to 16-year-olds that vaping is cool and it's safe and it's fun. So we're at that point now where we have to make this move, make these changes. I'll just add, five years ago, 16-year-olds did not know who Jenny McCarthy or Stephen Dorff were. I'm 32 years old and I barely remember Jenny McCarthy. Um, and let's talk about safe. What the surveys are actually showing is that the vast majority of adults now falsely believe that vaping nicotine could be just as hazardous, if not more hazardous than smoking. And the fact that the New Jersey government has done such a poor job of communicating to the public that it is illicit THC products that they need to be on guard for 
should be a controversy because every day that goes by when people aren't being warned of the specific kind of product that is sending young people, old people, to the hospital in droves is another day when another teenager could pick up a THC cartridge thinking it came from a legal dispensary and end up finding out that it's one of the ones laced with vitamin E acetate. That's something that's not getting discussed and it should be. Well, why would we carry the water for you in that? We're not going to carry that water for you. We're not going to do that. Now, of course, THC uh, by young people is already illegal. Uh, there are public health measures to deal with that issue. Are they perfect? No. But to say that we that you know that we are not um, emphasizing that enough when there are, uh, there are many laws addressing that issue is uh, is ridiculous. Can I? Well, I would like to know what um, you know. Given that there has been this this. I would say proof that, that much of the marketing has been directed at children, and maybe it's Juul, maybe it's specific to Juul. What do you think um, is the appropriate regulatory response here? Is it a federal thing? Is it what? What do you? What What needs to be done? First, I don't believe that warning the public that illicit THC cartridges are sending people to the hospital is in any way carrying the water for the nicotine vaping industry. As for policy solutions, at the federal level, we support enacting what New Jersey has done already, Tobacco 21, in combination with much stricter enforcement at the FDA. The FDA today, it takes something like five or six violations in a two-year period to have your ability to sell tobacco products be taken away. If you get caught selling to a minor, it may be nine months or a year before another FDA person comes in and tests your store. That shouldn't be. If you fail a test, if you sell to a minor, whether it's New Jersey or the FDA doing it, they should be back in your store the next month and the next month and the next month to ensure that you aren't illegally selling products to children. As for marketing, marketing restrictions can occur at the federal level. The First Amendment gets in the way in some ways, but when the FDA has product approval authority, they can require post-marketing conditions as a way of, market, of allowing the marketing of the product. So dealing with marketing, dealing with bulk sales, preventing 17-year-olds from being able to send their 20-year-old friend in to buy 50 packs of jewel pods or buy them off the internet, that in combination with marketing, with Tobacco 21, with proper enforcement can actually make a dent. But the reality is, and, is that I'm just sorry, as we've accepted- you would support the, yes. the vaping association support? Okay. But we've accepted, we've accepted, thank you, we've accepted as a society that something like 20% of youth are going to use marijuana. We've accepted that about 25% of youth are going to use alcohol under the age of 21. You're never going to eliminate youth experimentation, but you can do a lot through legislation to not just protect adults, but protect youth as well. Thank you. Um, just, we should. Just let me just. It, it is if the uh, raising the the age of acquisition, uh, legal acquisition of these products worked then we wouldn't see middle schoolers using these products. We have to do something more. We need to do that too, but if you're going to deal with the rampant use of these products in high schools, all um, under the age, uh, most of them under the age of, all of them under 21, um, and certainly in middle school, then we have to take further steps. Uh, so yes, um, have the uh, age restrictions on there, but we need to go farther because when 75 to 80% of the kids are using these flavors, flavors are the problem. So I think enforcement is a, is a big question. It's come up in a number of, of um, issues. I don't know if the bills include additional provisions for that. I know the Department of Health does a lot of inspections and things like that. 
Um, I'm curious about that, but I'm also curious if maybe we can just, all of us, quickly um, just say, what can communities, schools, what should local organizations, counties, municipalities be doing? We got a question about municipal bans. I mean, where do you see the sort of local action, if well, you will? Well, one of the, in, in, within the proposals to deal with uh, this problem are increasing the registration of businesses that are, that right. are um, involved with the selling of these products and to use that registration money to, to drive enforcement. In addition, um, the local governments, and, and we are uh, sort of assisting that by uh, those governments who will move forward with their own inspection uh, regimes, will be able to retain uh, their registration money. They can also register and retain that money to, to be used for local enforcement of the um, of the age restriction. So uh, we're enhancing that. We know more money needs to be spent in that area. Uh, when you, I think we had what, 12 inspectors or something across the really state. Small um, you know, so uh, being able to get in and do your uh, age verification um, uh, work uh, is you know, you're, you're not going to be able to do that well when it's so underfunded. And so we're we're trying to increase that. Uh, hopefully, it will help. And this debate, has, this debate has been a little contentious, as all good public health debates should be. <laughs> uh, but I think we can find agreement there. If you are going to raise the license fee to $500, which I think every vape shop in the state would agree with, but they would want to see that money actually go to enforcement. They want to have a fake 16 or 17-year-old or 18-year-old walk into their store once a month, once every two weeks, from the New Jersey State Department of Health, checking to see if they're selling to minors. They want consistency. But I also think we need to protect those adult-only stores. If you're going to restrict the sale of these products to the adult-only stores, we should prevent local communities from making the bad decision of banning their stores. So preemption of some sort on bans, not on local licensing, not on local licensing fees, those sorts of things, but preemption on bans on the sale of these products. On I think that is sensible policy. Banning sales altogether, right, because we did. Yeah, I know that's a wise, but that's a local decision. And, uh, but in terms of the enforcement element of this or, or these issues that the bill does uh, establish ele uh, electronic age verification process. So whether it's in person or online, because the online stuff now is a little bit, you know, you can kind of get around some of that, right? Uh, but whether it's purchasing or delivery uh, on the online product, then you would have to have in-person age verification upon receipt of the product and in the store, and even to get in, or to get in, but electronic age verification before you sell the product. The fine, the penalties for selling to underage uh, is increased, enhanced as it should be. Uh, not the person purchasing it, uh, but the person who's selling it. Uh, and that is effective, right? It's always been effective in some places. It hasn't been effective clearly enough. Uh, but in my town of Woodbridge, where, so just not long ago, a year or so ago, we had allowed, enabled local governments to establish her own uh, licensing fee and to use that fee for inspecting the vape, stop, the vape shops, in my community at least. Woodbridge is pretty big. And so, and literally every time I see my health officer, he gives me a hug. And he said, I'm so glad that we're able to do this because we are literally going to every store all the time, whether it's a convenience store, a gas station, or a vape shop. Uh, and so it actually works. The money's being used for the right purpose. And I'm happy to hear that's not going to so wholesome. Look at that. Everybody's nodding. Kumbaya moment. Kumbaya moment. Yeah. Did we capture that on film? All right. So, uh, but before we leave it, let's talk a little bit about um, what else local communities can do, because I'm thinking of the, the Hackensack Meridian Health Program. Um, you know, there's obviously a call for more research, but that's not necessarily going to happen at the local department. What can schools, municipalities do 
you want to start? Yeah, and I'll pass it. I'll try quickly. So a few years ago, it was three, probably three years ago, uh, when this sort of really started popping up, the, 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 the youth usage, I attended a school board meeting and I explained to my friends, who I know all of them, uh, all nine of them, to uh, the dangers of what's happening. And they kind of looked at me and nodded their head and said, gee, that's terrible. And nothing really got done. The same thing with opioid, the opioid, with the opioid epidemic. Oh, that's really terrible. No, we shouldn't put posters up. So I think we really have to engage local boards of education, local governments, and you know, in, in a matter that makes sense. So it's evidence-based, not just what someone thinks, not having the, the DARE person come in or whatever the new iteration of DARE is. Like real, what is the evidence-based way in which to educate young people and to have whether it's the substance abuse counselors, whether it's some other folks in, in, the, in the school district. Peer to peer stuff. Yeah, peer to peer like stuff, right, to really, that, that's really effective. Like, let's, what's the evidence-based way in which they, we can most effectively communicate to young people the dangers of, of vaping, of drinking, and alcohol, and all the other things, not just, it's bad for you, don't do it, because that really works for a ninth grader, right? Don't do this, bad for you, oh, then I'm gonna do it. So, I mean, there has to be the evidence-based ways in which to go about this. Thank you. In, in the absence of the evidence that we need to know what program actually connects with youth and regard and results in less youth experimentation with the products. Number one advice that I can have as someone who went through extensive drug education in elementary, middle, and high school, don't lie to youth. If you lie to youth, especially in the internet age, all it takes is one Google search to see that's not true. So if you go in and you tell youth that all vaping is associated with lung injuries and deaths, all it takes is one Google search to find out, oh, it's illicit THC products that the CDC is blaming on these lung illnesses and deaths, and then they don't take you seriously. And I speak from personal experience of hearing reefer madness in my middle school, <laughs> and lo and behold, what did I do right. starting in eighth grade? Uh, I won't admit till it's legal. <laughs> and now look who he's working for. No, the, the, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with just not lying, period. I think that's probably a good, uh, a good rule. But in terms of other things that uh, I think schools can do, I mean, we, um, uh, there's a bill that's going to move forward that will put detectors in bathrooms so that we can uh, deal with some of the surreptitious use in schools. Uh, I think that's going to be, that might be a part of the solution. Uh, you know, and we, uh, in the coming months in the next legislature, are going to be looking at the issue of, of of uh, mental health, uh, teen mental health in particular going forward. And part of the evaluations that will need to start taking place in schools are going to be dealing with questions of, of drug use and other kinds of illicit use so that we can get people the information they need uh, to, um, to prevent, uh, you know, a, a downward slide into, into addiction. That, you know, the things that we see in adulthood, the addiction to nicotine, the addiction to alcohol, the addiction to opiates, many of these things have their antecedents in, you know, in the seventh grader, in the, in the, in the fourth grader. And if we can get on top of these kinds of things early, we can head off a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, we know kids are going to experiment. We know um, that people get addicted, they're going to fail. That's why when you hear these statistics about the people using these uh, smoking cessation devices, and many of them going back on so, Recidivism is the hallmark of addiction. But we know that if we keep at it, keep working with people, keep reinforcing messages uh, that will help uh, inure to their health, that we'll get, many people will get there. And, and so, you know, we've, it's got to be, um, you know, all hands on deck. Every venue where we can deliver a message, we should. We should use technology, internet, the kids are on their phone. There are, there's a, um, a uh, internet or a, uh, an electronic product, I think, I think it's called a firm. Uh, that uh, a lot of the youth groups are pushing that. If there's a child in school 
who um, has violated the rules about smoking school, they have to go and sit on this, this computer program and go through a course to, to talk about the dangers and harms and things they can do to prevent that. We, we need to make sure that something like that is available to all of our kids. Let's use the technology we have, use the phones that they have because we know that will deliver the message. We just have to make sure the message is one that's consistent with what the CDC and other um, um, uh, informed people recommend. Thank you. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you all very much. Um, Assemblyman Dr. Herb Conaway, Mr. Greg Connolly, and Senator Joe Vitale. Thank you very much, everybody. Appreciate you coming out. I also I want to thank both panels uh, very much, and also Lilo uh, for this is, a, this is a long morning for a moderator, so uh, special thanks. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for out there in Twitter world. Uh, let's just say it was as animated out there as it is here, um, to say the least. But I, I think it's obviously a really good discussion. Um, please fill out those surveys if you can before you leave, because again, that's really helpful to us. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ's If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.